Good morning, everyone. Poppy's off this week. Audie Cornish is with us. And let's get started with five things to know for this Friday, September 1st. Former President Trump pleads not guilty in the Georgia election subversion case. That means he'll skip his arraignment next week. He also wants to separate his case from his co-defendants who want a speedy trial. And two leaders of the Proud Boys were sentenced to long terms in prison for their role in the attack on the Capitol. Top Lieutenant Joseph Biggs, who you see here, was sentenced to 17 years. And Zachary Real got 15 years. An urgent manhunt is underway right now after a convicted murderer escaped a Pennsylvania prison. The district attorney says the killer's depravity knows no bounds. And breaking overnight, President Biden is asking Congress for four more billion dollars to refill FEMA's disaster relief fund after a string of natural disasters, including Hurricane Idalia, and he prepares to visit Florida tomorrow. And how did you spend your wedding day in a battle between the best teams in baseball? Superstar Ronald Acuna Jr. decided to celebrate his wedding day in the grandest way possible. You're seeing it right there, hitting his 30th homer of the season, a grand slam that helped the Braves take down the Dodgers. Seen in this morning starts right now. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome. Good morning. Good to see you. And we're going to dive right in with former President Trump, who's pleading not guilty to 13 felony counts in the Georgia case, charging him and 18 co-defendants with interfering in the 2020 election. Now, Trump is also choosing to waive his right to appear at his arraignment in Atlanta next week. That hearing was set for Wednesday and cameras would have been allowed in the courtroom. Now, this marks the fourth time Trump has formally denied criminal charges since leaving the White House. Several other defendants, including Sidney Powell, Trevion Cuddy, and Jenna Ellis, have also entered not guilty pleas in order to avoid their in-court appearances. Now, Fulton County DA attorney Fannie Willis is asking the judge to expedite the case and for all 19 defendants to stand trial together beginning October 23rd. However, Trump is seeking to separate his case from his co-defendants who want a speedy trial. His legal team argues they would not have time to prepare by October 23rd. And forcing them to do so in less than two months would violate Trump's constitutional right to a fair trial and due process. We're going to get to CNN Zachary Cohen with more. So, Zachary, this is uh, the fourth not guilty plea for the former president. What can you tell us about what's going on? Yeah, good morning, guys. Trump's lawyers making clear they want to slow things down here and arguing that it would be unconstitutional to force Donald Trump to go to trial on October 23rd of this year. That's when Fannie Willis wants to try all 19 of the defendants in this case, including the former president. But look, they're arguing that they need time to prepare. They have, there's another case that his, Trump's lawyer has to deal with, and he's saying that would prevent him from prepping an appropriate defense for the former president. Now, look, we also got a ruling yesterday that any trial um, proceeding in this case will be televised. You know, the judge saying that this is essential for transparency. And but this only does apply to um, Georgia court and um, in, in the state of Georgia. And as you know, that there are several defendants in this case that are trying to move their case into federal court where there are no cameras allowed. So as of now, we may be seeing a lot of Donald Trump on televised um, when this goes to trial. But if it gets moved to federal court, we may not see what, what, what's going on there. Now, Zach, there, is, there are a lot of kind of procedural machinations that are playing out right now down there. But there's one decision I think everybody is waiting on. It could come really at any moment at this point. Mark Meadows trying to move his case to federal court. There's another filing last night. Any word on when we may get a ruling from the judge? 
Yeah, Phil, there's a lot of moving parts here, but you're right. Mark Meadows, at any moment, we could learn if he's going to get to move his case to federal court or not. And, you know, the both sides, prosecutors and Meadows' attorneys, filed additional briefs yesterday, essentially arguing their side as to why or why this case shouldn't be moved. But you know who's watching this decision or for this decision very closely is Donald Trump's lawyers. He's expected to also file a motion to try to move his case to federal court. He's going to wait and see what happens with his former chief of staff first, it looks like. Zachary, thanks so much. So Trump may be pleading not guilty, but it's important to step back here. And I think CNN's Stephen Collinson, uh, our great digital writer, really does that in his piece this morning, saying, quote, a net of justice is tightening around 2020 election deniers. So what's he actually talking about here? He's talking about this week's legal losses for people who tried to overturn the 2020 election results. A top Proud Boys lieutenant, Joe Biggs, now facing 17 years in prison. Biggs led the march to the Capitol on January 6th and was convicted of seditious conspiracy. About former Marine Zachary Real, president of the group's Philadelphia chapter, he's looking at 15 years. He broke down in tears during his sentencing and told the judge, quote, for what it's worth, I stand here today and say that I am done with it all. I'm done with politics. I'm done peddling lies for other people who don't care about me. And then there's Rudy Giuliani, who also notched his first legal loss this week. He's found liable for defaming two Georgia election workers who he very falsely accused repeatedly of tampering with the 2020 election results. And then... There's former White House advisor Peter Navarro's contempt of Congress trial. A judge ruled this week that he cannot use executive priv- the executive privilege defense for failing to answer a House January 6th committee subpoena. His criminal case, that goes to trial next Tuesday. The Capitol physician has medically cleared Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell to continue his work schedule. This after a concerning moment on Wednesday. Now, as you can see there, McConnell froze for more than 30 seconds while speaking with reporters in his home state of Kentucky. And it was the second such incident in about a month. CNN Capitol Hill reporter Melanie Zanona is in Washington. And Melanie, I just want to start with what the Capitol physician had to say. What did he talk about? Yeah, so the Capitol physician said he consulted with both Leader McConnell and McConnell's neurology team and determined that McConnell was good to go. I want to read you part of the statement from the Capitol physician. He said, after evaluating yesterday's incident, I have informed Leader McConnell that he is medically clear to continue with his schedule as planned. Occasional lightheadedness is not uncommon in concussion recovery and can also be expected as a result of dehydration. As a reminder, Mitch McConnell tripped and fell at an event in March and did suffer a concussion. Now, this letter doesn't really reveal a whole lot, but it is notable that Mitch McConnell's team is the one who was releasing it. Because after his first freezing episode in the Capitol last month, they wouldn't even say whether Mitch McConnell saw a doctor or got any medical treatment. So clearly, they are trying to be more transparent in a bid to tamp down this growing speculation about McConnell's health and his political future. And yesterday, McConnell received some notable backup from President Joe Biden. Let's take a listen. I spoke to Mitch. He's a friend, uh, um, and I, uh, I I spoke to him uh, uh, today. Uh, and uh, you know, uh, he was his old self on the telephone. It's not un- at all unusual to have the response that sometimes happens to Mitch when you've had a severe concussion. It's part of a it's part of the recovery, and so I'm confident he's going to be back to his old self. 
Of course, Biden himself facing questions about his age as he runs for re-election. But with Mitch McConnell, this issue not going away anytime soon. And there are growing doubts about whether he will continue to serve as leader beyond 2024 when his current term as leader expires. Yeah, Mel, in, in driving those growing doubts, you know, uh, Manu Raju, Burgess Everett over Politico, kind of the deans of the Senate uh, <laughs> reporters covering Capitol Hill uh, have reporting that Republicans could call kind of a special meeting to discuss his ability to lead, to lead him. Uh, I know that's still kind of a work in progress. It's very fluid. But uh, I'm going to break some news here, Mel. Uh, if he steps down, the replacement will almost certainly be named John. Right. <laughs> that That is exactly right. So there's long been speculation about who might succeed Mitch McConnell whenever he does decide to step aside. And the three top contenders are all named John. There's John Thune of South Dakota, John Barrasso of Wyoming and John Cornyn of Texas, all in and around leadership, very close to Mitch McConnell. Uh, but as you said, they could call a special conference meeting next week when they return to the Senate from their August recess. It would take five Republicans to force such a vote. But that would just be a meeting to talk about their leadership. There is no mechanism to force a vote. And so really, this is going to be a conversation about who succeeds McConnell after 2024. Melanie, thank you so much. Well, just moments ago, we learned the Biden administration plans to ask Congress for additional funding to replenish FEMA's disaster relief fund. Now, remember, CNN reported earlier this month that the fund is already running out of money in a year that's setting records for billion-dollar weather disasters, from catastrophic flooding to tornadoes, wildfires in Hawaii, and just this week, a hurricane ripping through Florida's West Coast. Now, President Biden is set to visit devastated communities in Florida tomorrow, but first— He's asking for Congress to help out. CNN's Arlette Signs is live for us at the White House. And Arlette, what was striking to me is it was just a few weeks ago that an emergency disaster funding request was made, $12 billion. Now they're adding another $4 billion on top of it. Does that kind of underscore the urgency here? Yeah, good morning, Phil. This is certainly one of the most pressing issues facing President Biden right now, as they're trying to ensure that FEMA not just has the resources to respond to Hurricane Adalia and those wildfires in Maui, but also to respond to future disasters. And that is why you see President Biden this morning upping his request for Congress to fund the Disaster Relief Fund. Initially $12 billion, now adding on another $4 billion onto that for a total of $16 billion. Now, it comes at a time when FEMA is significantly strained. FEMA Administrator Deanne Criswell earlier in the week said that they only have $3.4 billion in their existing disaster relief fund. The agency has already shifted into this immediate needs funding mode to try to focus simply on those life-saving activities. She's uh, estimated that they will run out of funding at some point in September. And that is why the administration is going to Congress to ask for more money in the this moment. And it comes as there have been record weather-related disasters uh, facing this country. Data from about mid-August said that there were 15 weather-related disasters that exceeded $1 billion in damages. That didn't factor into account the Maui wildfires or this hurricane uh, down in Florida. And of course, now there are still several more weeks left of hurricane season, highlighting some of the urgency facing this moment. Now, one of the challenges as, as the Senate's returning next week, the House after that is that the initial request was tied to Ukraine funding, something that there has been some opposition on up on Capitol Hill. So that will be one of the challenges that the administration faces as Congress is considering this request. Of course, President Biden will get a firsthand look at some of FEMA's efforts as he travels down to Florida tomorrow. Yeah, the urgency is clear. The pathway to actually getting that money is still very up in the air. Arlette Science from the North Lawn. Thank you. And one inmate is dead. Two others have been injured in a stabbing at the same jail where Donald Trump surrendered just a week ago. 
We'll have those details ahead. And an urgent manhunt is underway in Pennsylvania this morning for an escaped inmate who is being described as, quote, extremely dangerous. His depravity knows no bounds. I mean, this is someone who has nothing to lose, as you indicated. So I don't know what he's capable of doing. Welcome back. George's Fulton County Jail. Once again in the spotlight this morning, not for a Trump-related reason. This time, police say a detainee has been killed and two others injured after a mass stabbing on Thursday. This is the fifth death of a jail inmate there since the end of July. The Justice Department has launched a civil rights investigation into the jail for dilapidated and unsanitary conditions, as well as violence against detainees. It's also, of course, the same jail where Donald Trump turned himself in last week, and he had his first ever mugshot taken there after being indicted on criminal charges in the Georgia election subversion and racketeering case, to which he's now pleaded not guilty. So joining us to talk more is Temadayo Ganga-Williams, who served as a senior investigative counsel for the January 6th committees. Currently partner is Selendi Gay Ellsberg, also national political writer for the Associated Press, Michelle Price, and Amy Parnes, chief White House correspondent at, and political correspondent at The Messenger. So I want to start with you, Temadayo, because while prosecuting a president is unusual. RICO violations are not. So help us understand why lawyers would be saying we should sever his case from the other defendants. So there there are several reasons why you may want to sever your case. One is that you want to go more quickly than others. And here, for example, Kenneth Chesborough, he's saying, Judge, I want to activate my Speedy Trial Rights Act now, and I want to move forward as quickly as possible. I want a trial in October. But why? What's the benefit to any given defendant for going faster? you're going to be testing the prosecutor's case. Is, is Fannie Willis ready to try this case right now? And that's what they want to know. And generally speaking, a criminal case only gets worse for a defendant as it goes on and on and lingers. It does not get better, typically. So you want to be in the front of the line. You want to be in the front. But there are dangers to that. If you're moving first, that means you may not get to file the same number of motions. You may be able to challenge your case the same way. And frankly, your lawyers don't have the amount of time to prepare so they are dangerous and moving quickly here. But I think what he's doing is testing the case. And frankly, but President Trump is not going to want to do that himself. He's saying, I want to delay, delay, delay. So, of course, there's some tension there. Can I, can I ask along those lines, you know, what, what would it do to the prosecution if the cases are severed or if uh, the individual cases are, are split apart? Well, it means that Fonnie Willis is going to have to try these cases separately. And that's OK. In a case like this with 19 defendants, it's, I think it was likely not feasible that all 19 would go together. I think the most likely result would be some separation. The danger for the prosecutor here is that she has a bad result in an earlier case. If you have a hung jury or an acquittal, that's going to set the tone going forward. It may impact the jury, meaning folks are going to see one case went forward, didn't get a conviction. When a later case comes up, the general jury pool might be aware of that fact. It makes it harder to get another conviction. I want to bring Amy and Michelle in here for a second, because while we're talking about D.A. Willis, the governor, Brian Kemp, has basically rejected calls from state lawmakers who say they want to impeach her or pull her from office. Um, I think we have a clip. Up to this point, I have not seen any evidence that D.A. Willis's actions or lack thereof warrant action by the prosecuting attorney oversight commission but that will ultimately be a decision that the commission will make regardless in my mind a special session of the general assembly to end run around this law is not feasible and may ultimately prove to be unconstitutional now there's a rash of laws around the country trying to say that you can pull a da you disagree with but what's significant about this moment 
Well, I think it's interesting because you have these two men sparring and clearly Governor Kemp and Donald Trump, um, he, he is on the other side of Trump on this. And they have been sparring since 2020 over this. And obviously he does not want to, he wants to uphold the law. He does not want to make this a political moment. And he's going up against other Republicans who are saying, in the pressure of other Republicans who are saying, come on, do this. So this is obviously not a good moment for the former president. It's always fascinating, it, like repeatedly, Brian Kemp does thing that is normal and hews to the law and therefore is at odds with a large swath of the Republican Party and the former president. Michelle, one thing I want to ask you, the, the judge in the, the Georgia DA case, in the Fulton County case, said it's going, to be a, on, it's going to be televised, right? You're going to be able to watch. We assume that was going to be the case, confirm that, it's going to be live streamed. What does that do, given that most of what we've seen has been behind the scenes up to this point? Right. I mean, this is the former president's going to be on trial on YouTube, basically. And this is going to be, you know, from his camp, from a political standpoint, this is basically campaign footage for them. They are treating these trials as his campaign, that he is being politically persecuted is the argument they are making. In the, in the primary election, that does seem to be helping him. But in the general election, this does not seem to be helping him. Uh, and, you know, airing all this evidence, having him sit there at a, at a witness table where he can't speak, where people are presenting evidence about things he did might actually be very harmful for him. I mean, he can speak. He can go on the stand at some point. Temidayo, can you talk about the pros and cons of having all of your information kind of public, right, which is what happened with the January 6th committee? Uh, as far as the evidence? Being on TV. Being on TV. Well, I, I think it's, you know, if you're the prosecutor, you have to shut all of that out. Because what happens is, what, what concerns a prosecutor is not the American people watching. It's going to be those 12 people in the jury box. That's going to be the focus. And we've seen it with other high-profile cases from celebrities. There can be a lot of public interest, a lot of public opinions, and then, but those verdicts are going to be what they are. Okay. And that's why we're often shocked by them. Can I just follow up, though? I mean, you were on the January 6th committee. The entire perception of the committee and what it was working on changed after the first hearing. Like, unequivocally. I mean, I was in Washington, so at least in our bubble, to some degree, it did. Did you feel that? Did you see that? Did that change how you guys operated with the investigation itself? Well, I think the, the change in perception was planned. I mean, the, the, the hearings were crafted to be a kind of public trial. They were made to impact public perception and public opinion. So I think we looked at that at our hearings as a kind of jury trial for the American people as the jury. But I think that's going to be slightly different from the courtroom. We were thinking about what's going to make good television and what's going to make people who may not otherwise be interested focused on our, on our substance. If you're in a jury trial, you're thinking about what are the elements of the crime? How do I prove this case beyond a reasonable doubt? You're thinking about the rules of evidence. You're thinking about the judge's perception. Different threshold. It's a altogether. different threshold. Exactly. All right. Thank you all so much for speaking with us. Well, there's an intense search underway this morning for a convicted murderer who escaped to Pennsylvania prison. Where that stands and where he was last seen. We've got more on that next. And anti-LGBTQ bills have been one of the few, uh, sorry, have one of the few pediatric heart transplant cardiologists in Louisiana leaving the state. There is going to be a hole that's left when I leave. How much is that weighing on you? By far the hardest part of this decision was thinking about my patients. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... Lately, we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs, that would be a concern. That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. This is terrifying. I've never been a part of anything like this before. He could be in the woods anywhere, so, you know, not knowing if he's hiding somewhere, waiting until dark to come out. This morning, a massive manhunt is underway in Pennsylvania after a convicted murderer escaped a prison outside of Philadelphia. Now, police say Danello Cavalcanti is extremely dangerous. He was last seen about 30 miles west of Philadelphia wearing a white T-shirt, gray shorts, and white sneakers. CNN's Danny Freeman joins us live from Philadelphia. Uh, Danny, the way he's been described, the reactions you heard from residents there, very unsettling, ominous. What's the latest on where this stands? Definitely unsettling, definitely ominous, and law enforcement officials have really been very clear. This is an extremely dangerous man who has escaped this prison in Chester County, and that's why we're seeing this multi-agency manhunt now continue into its second day. Phil, I want to go back for a second and just describe exactly how all this started and what we do know at this point. Law enforcement officials say this started yesterday, Thursday morning, around 8.50 in the morning. That's when Danilo Cavalcante escaped from the Chester County prison. As you said, it's about 30 miles west of where we are here in Philadelphia. Uh, he was last seen, though, around 9.40 a.m. And I want to repeat what you said. He was wearing a white T-shirt, gray shorts, and white sneakers. And, Phil, the reason that's important is because police believe that he may have changed out of his prison garb into those clothes after he escaped the prison. Now, Phil, you might be wondering why are people, or rather law enforcement agents, uh, so emphatic when describing the suspect? It's because just two weeks ago, this inmate was convicted of first-degree murder. And just last week, he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And that was because he was found guilty of stabbing his former girlfriend 38 times, killing her in front of her children. Prosecutors say the motive for that killing was the girlfriend had discovered that this man was actually wanted for murder in Brazil, a separate murder. So again, that's why we're hearing such urgency from law enforcement. Take a listen to what the DA of Chester County had to say yesterday afternoon. His depravity knows no bounds. I mean, this is someone who has nothing to lose, as you indicated. So I don't know what he's capable of doing. If he's already engaged in a murder in broad daylight in front of her two children, there's no um, stopping him from doing anything more egregious. 
Phil, at this point, at least a dozen agencies are helping in this search. We're seeing canines, we're seeing drones out there, we're also seeing helicopters. But I should say, Phil, we still do not have an answer from law enforcement officials to the big question, how did he break out of this prison? Phil? And a critical question at that. Danny, keep us posted live for us in Philadelphia. Danny Freeman, thank you. Well, on the West Coast, there's actually another manhunt underway this morning for an escapee in Oregon. State police say Christopher Lee Prey, who's charged with attempted aggravated murder, fled from custody while shackled at the arms, legs, and belly. They say he fled a hospital after commandeering a 2016 white Dodge caravan on Wednesday night. Now, Prey is considered extremely dangerous. Since 2021, lawmakers in more than 20 states have introduced or passed bills similar to the so-called Don't Say Gay law in Florida. That's according to Education Week. Now, the controversial proposals and laws aim to prevent teachers from talking about certain topics, such as sexual orientation or gender identity. Louisiana has its own version of the bill, and now a prominent doctor there says it's the reason he is taking his family and leaving the state. CNN medical correspondent Meg Terrell reports from New Orleans. Yeah, I mean, this is what we called it our um, wall of love. When Jake and Tom Kleinmahan moved back to New Orleans, the city where they met and fell in love, they planned to raise their two kids and retire here. We built this house, honestly, to live here forever. A pediatric cardiologist, Jake returned to be medical director of the pediatric heart transplant program at Oshner Health, the only program like it in Louisiana. What do you love about being here? I feel like I really make a difference here. And before I came, any complex patients were having to be sent out of state for Mm -hmm. heart transplants. And I felt like the kids of Louisiana deserved to stay in Louisiana. But now Jake and his family are leaving the state after a set of bills passed the legislature this summer that they say make them feel unwelcome. The part that really solidified it for us was when we were watching the Senate Education Committee um, here the, about the Don't Say Gay bill. HB 466 pro- prohibits teacher-led discussions on sexual orientation or gender identity in grades K through 12. To think that if our kids went to public school and they were made fun of because they had two dads, a teacher would not have been able to step in and make a learning experience about different types of families. HB 466 and another bill which sought to require permission from parents for school employees to use certain names or pronouns for students were vetoed by Louisiana's governor in June. And a third bill banning gender-affirming medical care for most minors overcame the governor's veto and is expected to take effect in January. I'm really sad to leave, um, but I feel like I don't really have a choice. But the way that the political landscape in Louisiana is going, it's pretty clear that these laws are going to pass eventually. Jake's departure doesn't just mean there's one fewer specialist like him here in New Orleans. He says it leaves just two heart transplant cardiologists for kids for the whole state of Louisiana. There is going to be a hole that's left when I leave. How much is that weighing on you? By far the hardest part of this decision was thinking about my patients. The Kleinmahans are moving to Long Island, New York, where Jake will start a heart transplant program, and the whole family will start a new life. We teach our children about kindness, about celebrating differences, and we hope that 
they recognize this as us doing something so that they can live in an area where they can be free, they can be kind, they can celebrate our differences, our different type of family. Meg Terrell, CNN, New Orleans. Well, he was the influential architect of rock and roll, but did he ever get his due? Sin and Films presents the story of music legend Little Richard, our sit down with the film's director. That's next. Little Richard kicked the doors open to rock and roll in the 1950s. He paved the way for icons like Elvis Presley, James Brown, and the Beatles. Now, the new CNN film, Little Richard, I Am Everything, examines his place in history, takes a look at the iconic performer's relationship with religion, gender, and the music industry. Man, playing with Little Richard, heaven on earth. He was so hot. We played something like five nights a week, two or three shows a day. Remember in the 1950s, there's legal segregation. Black kids are not able to listen to music in the same spaces as white kids. Black and white musicians weren't allowed to play together. They had one night for white and the next night for African-American. But the white kids would come to the black kids concert too. Joining us now is Lisa Cortez, director of Little Richard, I Am Everything. Thanks so much for being here. Congratulations uh, on the film. I've watched it. It's extraordinary. But for me, what stuck, well, there's a lot of things that stuck out. But one of them was, you know, everyone knows who he is. Everybody knows his music. But the kind of connective tissue he has throughout decades of U.S. history, music, uh, life to some degree, I just didn't pull it all together until I watched. Thank you. I think that's the goal is to take little Richard from being this character who says shut up to really bring the viewer on a journey about who made this person. What was the interiority? Where did the pain come from? And how was his role as an architect of rock and roll influential to classic artists, but also to artists now? People think about Jerry Lee Lewis or Chuck Berry. But when you think about Little Richard, I think a lot of us have the images from the 80s and 90s kind of talk show circuit. And he was also openly gay, right? And talk about how significant he was, what kind of image he presented when he first came on the scene. Well, Richard was from another planet, I'd like to believe, you know, with the the hair and the bouffant, the, the more makeup than me this morning. Um, and also just the unabashed sexuality in his performance. But what we need to remember, it's a part of a continuum. Liberace is out there with a lot of glam in the 1940s, 15 years before Richard comes on the scene. And so Richard is, though, making his own gumbo in terms of music and presentation and leaning into tropes that are affiliated with, um, you know, a more feminine presenting face. And getting away with it, if I can use that term, when you think about mainstream culture. Well, you know, the more we begin to interrogate LGBTQ history, we see that, you know, there's Gladys Bentley. There's a lot of gender nonconforming artists. There's drag kings and drag queens 
that go back to Victorian times. And I think what's always interesting for me is it shows that Americans have not been as conservative as we oftentimes have liked to think. You know, well, what's interesting is his kind of internal struggle might not be the right word, but uh, kind of deliberations with his own faith and uh, his sexuality and kind of the back and forth. His dad was a minister, but also created his own contrast. I think he owned a speakeasy and, and a club bootleg. and he made bootleg. <laughs> like sort of like, right, was, they say it early on in the movie. And I'm like, oh, wow, that's an interesting dynamic. W- what was that like for him? Well, Richard's life is a roller coaster, I think, you know, swinging to extremes and having this great difficulty of balancing the sacred and the profane, which for him was the rock and roll. And it was very difficult to contain all the multitudes that were in him and that were so dynamic. Can you talk about, I guess, why it's important to think about him now. There are so many sort of figures from the past that people are recontextualizing in documentaries and movies. Why did you think Little Richard was due? I think Richard's a touchstone for so much. It's the music, it's the transgressive impact on culture, but it's also about hidden history. You know, I think he was presented in one way And the full scope of his contributions has not been told. It's especially important now at a time when there are spaces and places that want to contain the telling of black histories. Lisa Cortez, thank you so much. The documentary is really wonderful, and I hope people will will take a look. Be sure to tune in. The all-new CNN film, Little Richard, I Am Everything, premieres Monday at 9 p.m. Eastern and Pacific right here on CNN. Two Supreme Court justices have just disclosed trips paid for by conservatives, adding to the question if the court can monitor itself. We're going to discuss that next. And starting today, the pause on interest being added to your student loan debt expires. Interest rates were effectively set to 0% during the pandemic, but today it will return to the same rate they were before the freeze. And when it comes to paying back your student loans, for most borrowers, the payment will be due sometime in October. We'll be right back. This morning, more calls for better transparency as ethics questions linger around the Supreme Court. Justice Clarence Thomas officially acknowledged that Harlan Crow, a GOP megadonor, funded private trips. Thomas shared that in a new financial disclosure form released on Thursday. Justice Thomas has faced a lot of criticism for accepting gifts from Crow, first revealed in a series of reports published by ProPublica earlier this year. Joining us now is CNN senior Supreme Court analyst Joan Biskupic. Good morning, Joan. Good morning, Audie. So first, what do these financial disclosure forms show that we didn't know about before? Sure. And you're right to talk about the context at the top of, you know, just so much more media and congressional scrutiny on the justices these days at a time when, you know, they're known for their lack of transparency and absence of a formal ethics code as lower court judges have. So this is the first time that Justice Thomas in years has even referenced some of these um, private jet trips taken uh, at the expense of Harlan Crow. Uh, what this form had was his 2022 activities that included two, um, uh, a total of three trips that uh, Harlan Crow had 
financed uh, on his private jet uh, going to a, a Dallas event. And then also uh, an, uh, a very lavish excursion to uh, Harlan Crow's estate, uh, a, a beautiful vacation estate in upstate New York. And then going back to 2014, Clarence Thomas acknowledged that he should have put on prior forms the fact that uh, Harlan Crow had bought uh, three properties from members of the Thomas family in Savannah, Georgia, uh, that um, benefited the Thomas family. But Clarence Thomas said that there had been an overall loss in that sale to him, and he didn't think he had to report it. So those were the actual details of that filing. Uh, that, as I said, just captured a single year, except for the flashback to 2014. I want to come back to that private travel for a second, because Justice Thomas actually claimed that he was advised to avoid commercial travel for safety reasons. And for context here, this was kind of after the leak of the draft opinion overturning Roe v. Wade. I mean, a huge case. Can you talk about how that could have played into this? Yes, it was so interesting, Audie. It was the first time, you know, we had seen that publicly stated. That leak of the Dobbs ruling uh, came on May 2nd last year. Uh, That was the case that eventually did overturn Roe v. Wade. And on May 12th is when he went out to Dallas on one of those trips. And uh, he said in his financial uh, filing that uh, he had been advised uh, and I don't know if all justices has been advised, but he said he was following advice uh, from court authorities to uh, avoid flying commercial. Now, I am not aware of other justices trying to take private transportation, private jets, I mean, obviously cars and, and uh, Supreme Court police uh, escorts they, they travel with. But uh, private jets, I hadn't known that that might be uh, something that they'd be doing. Now, it was obviously a very tense time after that leak emerged, but he's, he's citing that as a justification for at least that May trip. But we do know that uh, many times in the past, before that leak had come out on May 2nd of 2022, he had been flying on Harlan Crow's dime. Now, you also had Justice Samuel Alito confirmed, uh, basically, uh, that he took a trip in Rome in 2002 that was paid for by a conservative group. I want to ask you, though, about Chief Justice Roberts. Where is he in all of this? And kind of what is the sense of whether or not he considers it an actual problem? You know, that is the question that uh, a lot of people are asking, because as much as Congress, Democrats in Congress say they want to do something on this, they are limited in part largely by the political atmosphere in Congress. You know, legislation is unlikely to emerge uh, from Congress to try to force the court to have its own code of ethics. So it's really in the hands of the court. And outsiders and and some justices themselves have looked to the, the chief to say, you know, show some leadership here. And he has... Um, Individual justices have said that he is now of the mind that they should have some sort of formal ethics code, but that he wants unanimity. The only thing he has said publicly about this in recent years is in, a, in, in May, he said that uh, he acknowledged that there, uh, there's a tension on this issue. And he said that, you know, they are, they are attending to uh, trying to instill public confidence in, their, in the, the work of the court. 
But, you know, when they left for their recess in June, they were really deadlocked behind the scenes on whether they even needed a formal code of ethics. So, you know, he's dealing with nine individuals. But I think that the, that it's right that uh, members of Congress, uh, advocacy groups, and as I said, some justices themselves are looking to the chief to show leadership on this issue at a time when public confidence is plummeting. Audie. Joan, thanks so much for following this. Thank you. Well, as questions swirl about the future of Mitch McConnell, a prominent conservative magazine website, they're calling for the senator to step down as minority leader. After that latest health scare, we're going to speak to the publication's editor. That's next. And this morning, the mayor of Uvalde, Texas, is calling for the district attorney who's investigating the Robb Elementary mass shooting to resign. Why the mayor is alleging a cover-up. We'll have that ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. So I'm pretty comfortable going on a limb here. It's safe to say that no one had a better day yesterday than Braves outfielder Ronald Acuna Jr. The 25-year-old is one of the favorites to win the, the National League MVP. He's an absolute stud, drops absolute bombs. And in the second inning against the Dodgers, Acuna, Acuna broke a one-to-one tie with a grand You're watching it, the grand slam home run. Now, this wasn't just any homer. It was the 30th of the season for Acuna. That makes him the first player in Major League history to hit 30 dingers and still 60 bases in a single season. It's August, September, not even the end of the season. That night, the funny thing is it might not even be the most memorable part of his day. Earlier, he married his longtime girlfriend, Maria. You see a photo there. In a small ceremony at a house in the mountains, about 45 minutes from the team's hotel. Caps off a pretty wild week for Acuna. On Monday, you'll remember he was knocked to the ground when two fans ran onto Coors Field to give him a hug. Uh, he handled that brilliantly, but this, I think, was probably a little bit more memorable for him. Pretty, pretty great stuff. I uh, love a good game. I'm glad someone's winning going into the vacation. Gay sports? Yeah. Gay. <laughs> Hello, local sports team. <laughs> uh, that's a cool story. I, I like the marriage, and that's awesome. It's a, congratulations I'm, to them. I'm from Boston. I don't even know if you're supposed to look at other teams. Maybe it's, like, not allowed. Is this, like, because I'm a Yankees fan? Or you're just oh, trying, you're trying wait. trying to draw me in right now? What? That's fine. That's fine. Good news is we get to do this for two more hours. Check, please. <laughs> CNN This Morning continues right now. Donald Trump pleading not guilty in the Georgia election subversion case. The judge says this trial is going to be televised. His attorney has moved to sever his case from other co-defendants. What Mark Meadows is doing is rolling the dice. If he wins that, he's in good shape. Mitch McConnell now medically cleared to keep working. If you hadn't seen the video, you would never have known anything had happened. The big question right now on Capitol Hill is exactly how long Senator McConnell can continue to remain as Republican leader. Law enforcement agencies are now engaged in a manhunt for a convict described as, quote, extremely dangerous after he escaped from a prison outside Philadelphia. Using canines, drones, and helicopters in this search. Prisons under pressure because of staffing levels, funding levels. And this is someone who has nothing to lose. I don't know what he's capable of doing. 
Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas is officially disclosing private jet trips in a vacation that was funded by a Republican mega donor. These were trips that he had to disclose. There was far less wiggle room. It's better to have the transparency that we didn't have in the past, but there's the core issue of the gifts themselves. Josephine Wright says her family's home has been on this land since the Civil War. Our blood, sweat, and tears are in this land. My ancestors are buried here. Community members say development threatens those families who still call it home. Why should we give up such a precious gift that God has given us? Well, good Friday morning, everyone. Audie Cornish is with us. A lot of news to get to throughout the course of this day across several fronts across the country. But we're going to start this morning on the questions that are swirling around Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. He has been medically cleared by the U.S. Capitol physician to continue his schedule after freezing in public for the second time in just weeks. Watch. What am I talking about? What? Running for re-election in 2026. That's oh. right. Now, McConnell froze for more than 30 seconds in front of reporters in his home state of Kentucky Wednesday. It followed a similar incident at the Capitol in July. President Biden said that he's been in contact with the minority leader. Biden commented while visiting FEMA headquarters after Hurricane Idalia. I spoke to Mitch. He's a friend. Uh, um, and I, uh, I, I spoke to him uh, uh, today. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, he was his old self on the telephone. It's not un, at all unusual to have the response that sometimes happens to Mitch when you've had a severe concussion. It's part of a it's part of the recovery. And so I'm confident he's going to be back to his also. We've also learned that while McConnell will face Republican senators in a regular meeting next week, there is also the possibility senators could call a special conference meeting to discuss his ability to lead. Because there's been some chatter among rank-and-file Republicans about whether to force an internal debate about their leadership's future. This is according to a person familiar with the matter. Now, so far, no meeting has been called. It's unclear if there even will be one. But it takes just five GOP senators to call for such a meeting. Now, it's worth stepping back. McConnell is one of the most powerful and consequential Republican senators, certainly in modern history, uh, perhaps of all time, depending on how you look at things. He may have gotten the all clear from the Capitol physician, but questions about his ability to lead the party, they linger. Editors for the conservative magazine and website, The National Review, are calling for him to step aside, writing, quote, this obviously is not normal and affects his ability to function as a leading representative of his caucus. And added, prudence and realism have been hallmarks of his leadership and are now called for in considering his own future. Joining us now is editor of National Review, Rich Lowry. Rich, I appreciate your time because I think it's important to point out to people that McConnell is often a lightning rod in conservative circles. He is often a, a convenient punching bag uh, for kind of the far right conservatives of the party. Um, you guys are not that traditionally with McConnell. You had a, I very, uh, remember very well you had a column in 2020 mm-hmm. uh, that McConnell World uh, was very pleased with. It was uh, The title, I think, was McConnell Master of the Senate, kind of walking through the way he operates and why he's been successful from your perspective. What led you to this moment? What led the editors to this moment at National Review? Yeah, so this gives us no pleasure to say this. I think he's one of the most effective, the most effective and consequential Senate leader in memory. But these incidents are not normal. And even if it's just lightheadedness, 
He's clearly visibly aged since his bad fall back in March, and we just think it behooves him for his sake and for the sake of his colleagues to go out on his own terms. Now, this is an urgent crisis. It doesn't happen, need to happen today or tomorrow or next week, but we think he needs to make the decision that, it, that it's time to step aside and then set the wheels in, in motion. And I'm sure he thinks, as you know, he thinks carefully about everything. He probably has you know, uh, shrewd thoughts about how actually to carry this out, but it's, it's our view it's time to get the wheels in motion. No. You're a keen observer of Washington and power dynamics. You set that in motion. You start a transition process. And I think the theory of the case is you undercut yourself and your power. He's got three and a half years mm -hmm. left on his term. He's got until the end of this uh, congressional session uh, or this Congress as leader. Why would he do that to himself? Well, because you, you don't want to suffer any more humiliating incidents, and you want to go out on your own terms. Now, by all accounts, you know what Joe Biden said there is correct. He's completely lucid, but that's the time to, to go out on your, your own terms. And this will be a private thing. He's not going to be pushed. There's not going to be a special meeting that's going to push him out. It's, it has to be a personal decision. Uh, his colleagues, uh, most of them, love him and respect him, and they're going to give him a lot of space, uh, which he deserves. But it's our view that, that he should, as we say, be prudent and realistic about this the way he has so many other things over the course of his career. You make a good point, especially as the reporting about a potential special meeting to uh, consider his leadership is being talked about right now. If they put this up for a vote again, McConnell would easily defeat pretty much anybody he goes against based oh, yeah. on where he stands in He'd that smash. conference. Yeah. And, and I think that kind of gets to the point, you know, one of the things that McConnell does that maybe people don't appreciate as much on the Republican side is he defends his conference. He takes the heat for his conference. He doesn't move forward on things that he doesn't think his conference is moving, ready to move forward on. The decision to leave, are there any concerns about what that would do to the conference? Who would step up? Who would fill that void? Well, he seems to have a pretty good cadre of lieutenants there. Uh, John Cornyn or John Thune, who would be suited to to uh, to take up the mantle. But look, this is a it's a hard choice. Um, th these are really plum jobs. He's he's worked really hard, you know, his entire adult life to to get there, and he's done a good job since he's been there. Uh, but you know, he's not the the only old political leader in the United States, right? And we have Joe Biden, who I think at the moment is not in the kind of shape that you would want for a Senate leader, but is in the most demanding job on the planet. And, uh, you know, we're urging McConnell and Republicans to be realistic about this. But the entire Democratic Party has their head in the sands about the state of Joe Biden, who's really declining in front of our eyes. And they want us to believe that he can t uh, carry out the most demanding job in the United States for another five and a half years or whatever it is till he's age 86. And that's a major political risk for the Democrats and a risk for the for the country. You know, Rich, I want to play something that that Former Governor Nikki Haley said uh, in a moment about kind of the political dynamics here. But I, I do want to ask you to follow up on that point. Is part of this concern that having McConnell in this place, given what we've seen, undercuts the political argument against President Biden that has been made uh, by Republicans about his age? I, I think some Republicans, they'll think about it in those terms. But we think it's just on, on the merits. He's visibly aged. He's got to go go eventually, right? No one's immortal. Age comes uh, for us all. And it's time to, as I've said, to, to set the wheels in motion. I, and I do uh, uh, want to play the sound from, from Nikki Haley last night. Obviously, she's running the Republican primary. Uh, she was asked about McConnell. This is what she said.
What I will say is right now the Senate is the most privileged nursing home in the country. I mean, you know, Mitch McConnell has done some great things and he deserves credit, but you have to know when to leave. You know, again, it's not a rarity for Republicans to go after McConnell because it plays well, particularly uh, with the base audience. But, you know, Haley's kind of more of a McConnell Republican, I think, uh, than anyone else. Is this going to become a theme? We're going to see Republican political candidates just kind of across the board saying this. I, probably. You know, and for her, there's consistency, right? She's banged on yeah. about how, how old Joe Biden is, how old Donald Trump is, how there's a time for a, a new generation. So she couldn't really it'd be very awkward to turn around and say, no, Mitch is fine. You know, and he can he can stay there as long as he as he wants. But it's going to be much easier for presidential candidates to say this than I- any senator except for the inveterate uh, McConnell critics within the caucus to, to say this. They, they'll, they'll dance around it and I say give McConnell a, a lot of uh, leeway to make this decision on his own. Yeah, even the inveterate critics have been noticeably silent up to this point. I think very cognizant of the dynamics right now, which I think are very fluid. Rich Lowry, uh, really appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Go, go Yankees, even though there's not Thank much you. of that. Thank you, Audie. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Thanks, Rich. <laughs> the Fulton County judge overseeing the Trump election subversion case has just given the green light for the trial to be televised. Those new details next. And the mayor of Uvalde, Texas, believes a cover-up is in the works in the investigation into the Robb Elementary mass shooting. We're going to speak to the mayor later this hour. Stay with us. Any day now, a judge could issue a decision in Mark Meadows' bid to have his Georgia election subversion case moved to federal court. The main question, did Meadows' actions, like arranging Trump's call with Georgia state election officials, go beyond his duties as chief of staff at the White House? Joining us now is CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig, former January 6th committee attorney Temidayo Aganga-Williams, CNN political commentator and political anchor for Spectrum News, Errol Lewis, and politics reporter for Semaphore, Shelby Talcott. Welcome back. Welcome back, everybody. Um, so this was one of the final questions at yesterday's hearing um, about whether kind of Meadows had any federal authority. Um, that would mean that this case needs to be moved. Um, is this a significant moment? Yeah, it's a very big deal for this case. If this case gets moved over into federal court, Watch others to try to follow the same path. Now, this is going to be a really close decision. Others meaning others from the Trump White House, Other right? defendants. Because the state officials yeah. can't well, do this. Well, it's, it's, it's going to be a, a, a lot of people piling on because Jeffrey Clark, who was a DOJ official, federal official, has already made this motion. The big question is whether Donald Trump will. He may be waiting to see how does Meadows fare. And some of the others are going to also because they're going to say, well, we were acting at the instruction of federal officials under the authority of the federal government. So what are little lawyer WhatsApp groups saying about what could happen? Little lawyer, well, Tim and I have been talking about this. <laughs> I know <laughs> everything about these alleged no, lawyer WhatsApp these things, You know that's real. You're exactly you know right. That lawyer these, LinkedIn these is things lit. do exist. We do yeah. have our little text chains. It's, it's a coin toss. I mean, this one feels really, really close to me. And the judge said, asked for more briefing on this one specific issue. What if some of the actions were inside the role of chief of staff? What if some were outside? That tells me the judge is sort of on the fence, too. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, anytime a judge is asking for more briefing, it's because it's not a clear call. The judge is saying, asking the parties, I need more help. I want you to go back, dig deeper into the law and see whether you can guide me here. So I think it's going to be close. Uh, But if I were a betting man, I think it slightly goes against removal. I think if the court were to zoom out here and look at the totality of circumstances, 
which is often what judges will do. You are saying that as a January 6th committee investigator. I am. So you very much, right? Like, yeah. this is the context which you're looking at this. I, well, I guess what I'm looking at is, is looking at the facts here as to what Mark Meadows was doing, and I'm, I'm avoiding the zooming in and talking about what was this phone call or that phone call, but zooming out and saying you have a former president who's not acting in the role as president. He's acting the role as candidate. And the chief of staff is not there acting in a White House capacity. You can look at who was at the call with Rappensberger. It's not White House counsel that's on that call. You know, you're talking Rudy Gianni. He's not a government employee. Eastman, he's not a government employee. So these are all the things she'll, the, the judge will be looking at. The well. judge could be. I think looking at the full circumstance and saying, is this really a White House activity or is it, in fact, political activity about getting candidate Trump another term as opposed to President Trump enforcing federal law? The lack of precedent in case law here is I, I would never qualify for a lawyer WhatsApp chain, um, but I just find it fascinating because we don't often have moments like this. Um, Shelby, uh, we have heard a lot from the former president and his team that all of this is just election interference. The timing when it's happening, uh, Super Tuesday for the, the case from Judge Chutkin last week, earlier this week, it's been a long week, uh, that we heard about. Uh, I want you to listen to something Bill Barr said. Take a listen. basic principle in the criminal justice system is if a prominent person commits a crime and there's a and is seeking office, uh, that doesn't give him immunity. If there's if there's enough time to have it resolved before the election, it should be resolved. Now, you can argue about whether he should have been charged and so forth. But the idea that this is interfering with the election is simply wrong. Look, Barr has made a very sharp turn away from uh, kind of Trump world since he left uh, in, I think, December uh, at the end of Trump's term. But I think it's an interesting point. One, because he's a lawyer. Two, because he's a respected lawyer inside conservative circles. And again, And three, attacking. he was asked to look into election. He was, asked, he was there for all the of this. House. But I think he's, once again, he almost takes point by point that the Trump team puts out and then takes it apart in a media appearance shortly thereafter. Yeah. I, I, and you raise a really good point. I guess my question, and I look at it from the perspective of how is this affecting voters and how are voters viewing all of this? I don't know if it matters. I don't know if, if, if that argument, however legitimate it is, is going to make inroads with the majority of Republican voters who believe that this entire process is politicized, right? So, and I, to be clear, I don't know if anything would. Um, if, if Trump ends up being found guilty, I think yeah. the majority and of voters Errol, will can you jump the same. in here? Because people thought yeah. the same thing about the January 6th. <clears throat> this is a political process. It's meaningless. No one will watch it. No one will care. Is that how it played out? Well, no, not at all. But, you know, it's very interesting because what you see is the Trump team sort of saying at this one and the same time, they're saying this is election interference. This is designed to hurt us in the polls. And then in, in probably the same appearance, they'll say, uh, we sure are selling this merch. We're raising a bunch of money. This is giving us name recognition, and that's why we're so far ahead in the polls. So it's like, well, is it election interference? Is it hurting you or is it not hurting you? Is it, is it helping you or is it not helping you? I think the, the, the simple answer is that uh, they are running a strategy of trying to gin up their base, and they are using these cases as a means of doing that. And so, uh, yes, there might be election uh, intervention, shall we call it, but it's not clear whether or not it, it, it actually hurts Donald Trump for the strategy that he has laid out for his reelection you know, campaign. I agree with Errol and Bill Barr, which is sort of a weird sentence to say. <laughs> um, but uh, there's no evidence to me that this is intentionally designed to interfere with the election. But I do have to say, the fact that DOJ took so darn long really did nothing for a year and a half until the January 6th committee sort of 
force the issue. That is what has landed us in this scenario now. There's no reason, in my view, that this couldn't have been charged in late 2021, would have already been tried. But instead, because of DOJ's being dilatory, now we're in this logjam. I want to get to your reporting in this last block on Ron DeSantis and his super PAC. What's going on there? Yeah, so the, so uh, we've learned a few things. So they've originally they had um, ground operations in 18 states. They really launched with a huge operation, $100 million. And they've now shut, shut operations in four states, North Carolina, Texas, uh, California, and Nevada. And the the reason this is important is because, A, it shows how important these early primary states are to Ron DeSantis' presidential campaign. They are planning to double down in Iowa, double down in New Hampshire, double down in South Carolina. But B, it also shows that the original belief that Ron DeSantis was going to come in and just kind of really take it to Trump has not materialized. And so they've had to really shift their strategy. Plus, people have been eyeing the relationship between the campaign and the super PAC. It's been sort of a model of what to do or not to do, depending. Am I wrong about that? So how's it working out? You're right. And what's interesting is I don't know how well it's working out, right? Because we talked about this a few weeks ago when the um, super PAC decided to unveil this lengthy, these lengthy ideas and this plan on how Ron DeSantis should take it to Vivek Ramaswamy on stage. And he did none of that. And he ended up actually doing quite well. And, you know, I taught, we talked to um, uh, the super PAC afterwards and they said, well, yeah, I guess he did well. It was probably good that he didn't listen to the advice. So it's interesting because I feel like they're not always on the same page. And we've seen that. I mean, they're not supposed to be in the same. But, but you know, but yeah. they're trying to be. Like, the super PAC is clearly trying to run operations. And in a way, they have to because the super PAC is the one with the money. Yeah, I mean, I think you make a great point. Legally, not supposed to be coordinating. Yeah, but if you've so. decided that the super PAC is going to run your ground operations, run your air operations and campaigns, then you kind of have to have some... Alignment. Are you acting like campaign finance laws are actually? <laughs> no, like no, no. But, you know, Errol, like running a campaign is kind of a signal of whether you can run a country. And so far, how's DeSantis doing? Well, that's exactly right. And, and, and look, we, let's not absolve him of this. It's not like the super PAC just swooped in and gave him a bunch of bad talking points that he wisely ignored. He funded that super PAC. He took all of this money that he had left over from his state campaign, $36 million or something like that. And, and sort of got them off to a running start. And he, he fundraises for them. He rides on their private guys, yeah. planes. He gets on their buses when they want to drive him around Iowa. The campaign is imploding. And I think we're almost at the finger pointing stage. You know, somebody's going to have to take the hit when he comes up with few or no uh, delegates out of okay, we're bringing Iowa. you back. Strong prediction. bringing you back for that. But I actually want to bounce that off, Shelby. <laughs> yeah. She's going to be smart enough not to make a declarative statement given she covers the campaigns. But I, I, want, I want to dig in more on this. Errol, uh, Ellie, Shelby, Timodayo, thank you guys very much. Now, there's also an intense search underway this morning for a convicted murderer who escaped a Pennsylvania prison. Now, where that stands, where he was last seen, we're going to have all the details for you next. And a 93-year-old woman in Hilton Head, South Carolina, is in a bitter legal dispute with a company trying to build in her backyard a home that has been there since the Civil War. The fight to keep her land. That's next. Well, let me put it to you this way. I've never backed down on on anything that was right. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. A dispute over legacy and land. That's happening right now on Hilton Island in South Carolina. Hilton Head Island in South Carolina. 93-year-old Josephine Wright is at the center of a lawsuit 
It's picked up attention nationwide. As development goes up around her home, she is literally in the middle of what developers hope could be a new home community. But for Wright, it's so much more. CNN's Dan Gallagher reports. We are connected to this land. Our blood runs through these trees. No matter what, we will keep this land. So this land's going to be here with us if it's going to be another 200 years. <laughs> That's the way we look at it. But not everyone has that same view. The serene marsh and sandy beaches of Hilton Head Island have been home to the Gullah Geechee community since before America became America. But today, community members say development threatens those families who still call it home. Why should we give up? such a precious gift that God has given us. Josephine Wright has lived in this house on Hilton Head Island for 30 years, but she says her family's home has been on this land since the Civil War, purchased by freedmen and passed down for generations. Her husband, a Gullah descendant, wanted to be sure to keep the land in the family after his passing. I feel so much pride and comfort in knowing that this is where I will be for the rest of my life. But the 93-year-old great-great-grandmother has felt little comfort here over the past few months. This is when we start hearing the trees say boom, boom. Mm -hmm. Wright is being sued by a company with plans to build 147 three-story townhomes along this Jonesville Road community, a historic Gullah Geechee neighborhood. Our blood, sweat, and tears are in this land. My ancestors are buried here, down at the end of the road. Today, construction is closing in around Wright's modest home. Have has the developer at any point come to you to speak face to face about this? No, I've never spoken to any one of them. They have never knocked on my door. She says about five years ago, a woman did ask her about selling the land to an interested anonymous buyer for $39,000. And I said, you're insulting my intelligence. And would you give them that message? She says her first communication with the company, Bailey Point Investment LLC, was being served legal notice, which alleges a satellite dish, a shed, and a portion of Wright's screened-in back porch are sitting outside of her property line, encroaching on theirs according to their land survey. The lawsuit seeks removal, plus just an adequate compensation for its loss of the use and enjoyment of their property and expenses related to delays in development. Bailey Point says that the corner? That little corner is on their property. So the issue is that corner? Yes. Wright has filed a countersuit alleging Bailey Point and their affiliates are using harassment and intimidation tactics to pressure her off the land. Now, Bailey Point has filed a response denying any harassment as well as any previous offers to purchase her land. She has received an outpouring of support and donations, even from celebrities like Tyler Perry, Snoop Dogg, Fantasia and NBA player Kyrie Irving. The town of Hilton Head just announced it is pausing all construction in line with their town code, refusing to issue Bailey Point building permits until the lawsuits are resolved. But Josephine Wright isn't alone in her fight. She speaks to the Gullah culture and the Gullah desire to fight back. Luana Grave Sellers runs a nonprofit called the Low Country Gullah Foundation, focused on helping prevent land loss in the Gullah Geechee community. Her nonprofit estimates that since Hilton Head Island became a vacation destination after Mainland Bridge was built in the 1950s, 
the Gullah Geechee have lost nearly two-thirds of their acreage, mostly due to rising property taxes and problems with something called heirs' property. How pervasive is that on this island now? It's pervasive here, but it's pervasive throughout the South. And unfortunately, heirs' property is the primary way that black people in America are losing their land. Heirs property is a type of land ownership where a single property may be inherited by multiple members of a family for generations after the original owner passes away. But there's often a lack of clear legal documentation, making families vulnerable to land loss when there are disagreements within the family over selling. Some of these cases here, the land is being purchased by developers. Just look at this. This is one of the most peaceful areas. And lost by the Gullah Geechee. But in the case of Josephine Wright, she's standing firm on her ground. Well, let me put it to you this way. I've never backed down on, a, on anything that was right. Now, on the past couple months leading up to this week, CNN has repeatedly reached out to Bailey Point Investment and really anyone that we could find associated with the project. A named developer did respond, telling us that they're not the developer of the, excuse me, a named organizer did respond, telling us they're not the developer of the project, but rather an investment company that financed the deal. But look, we've reached out to lawyers for Bailey Point. We've reached out to the architect, even the engineer for the proposed subdivision. None have responded. Meanwhile, Josephine Wright says that she plans uh, to continue this fight. She wants her 40 grandchildren, 50 great-grandchildren, and 16, soon to be 17, great-great-grandchildren to enjoy that property until they're 93 years old. All right, Diane Gallery Force, thank you. Now, in a court filing this week, Alabama's Republican Attorney General Steve Marshall said he has the right to prosecute people who make travel arrangements for pregnant women to have out-of-state abortions. Now, that claim was a response to lawsuits from two women health centers that say he doesn't have that authority. Marshall is trying to get the case dismissed. Now, this Sunday, the whole story with Anderson Cooper brings you to the front lines of this abortion landscape, exposing the real-world impacts felt across the country. Journey with the women forced to travel hundreds of miles for care with a network of providers and people working together to make that travel a reality. This is a year without Roe. We got a client from Oklahoma going to Carbondale, and I said, don't forget to pick up your money from the clinic. No credit or debit card needed, and I'm here if she needs me. We've got pilots lined up. It's like, this airport is the best airport. Is the passenger still good to make this trip? My second client this morning, who was Texas to Wichita, she said, two beds, please. My mom and grandmother are coming with me. We've got our pilot and our passenger in touch with each other. The flight is about 15 minutes out. I found an Amtrak ride so she could sleep in a little while longer. North Carolina to Illinois. Iowa to Minnesota. Try to find an airport that might work. I think I have one person on a bus. Is there any way the passenger can get over to Chandler? Georgia to Ohio. East Texas to St. Louis. From Wisconsin to Chicago. Porterville. Louisiana. Alabama. Little Rock, Arkansas. Little Rock, Arkansas to, to Carbondale. Carbondale, Illinois. Well, be sure to tune in. An all-new episode of The Whole Story with Anderson Cooper. One Whole Story, One Whole Hour, airs Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern and Pacific only on CNN. Now, a push in some states to use the 14th Amendment to remove former President Trump's name from the ballot 
Now, the secretaries of state in three key battleground states are responding to those calls. We'll talk about that next. Former President Donald Trump has been indicted twice for attempting to subvert the 2020 election results. And now state election officials are looking at whether that disqualifies him from holding office again. What they're looking at is Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Quote, no person shall be a senator or representative of Congress or hold any office who, having previously taken an oath to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same. Now, New Hampshire's Secretary of State, a Republican, asked the state's attorney general to look into whether it could affect Trump's eligibility for the ballot. The AG's office said it was, quote, carefully reviewing the legal issues. In Michigan, the Secretary of State says she is consulting with election officials in other states about the matter. She said if they do act on it, the final decision would ultimately be decided in the courts. And here's Arizona's Secretary of State saying his hands are tied on the issue. Now, the Arizona Supreme Court said that because there's no statutory process in federal law to enforce Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, you can't enforce it, right? That's what the Arizona Supreme Court said. So that's the state of the law in Arizona. Now, do I agree with that? No, that's stupid. So are you saying that your hands are tied when it comes to qualifying candidates for the ballot? What I'm I'm saying is I'm going to follow the law. And the law in Arizona is what the law in Arizona is. Whether I like it or not is irrelevant. Let's bring in, bring back in senior, CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig, former January 6th committee attorney Timodayo Aganga-Williams, and CNN political commentator and columnist for New York Magazine, Errol Lewis. All right, um, Ellie, look, I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, having covered 2016 and there were a number of different legal thresholds slash avenues that people were looking at at various points to keep Trump off the ballot, uh, chased a lot of different things that never seemed to come to fruition. Tell me why I should feel that this is different than that. Oh, you shouldn't. I, I do really? not buy this theory at all. I don't think this is going to work. Then why are Democratic AGs, why are Secretaries of State talking about this, looking into it, a Republican in New Hampshire? Yeah, I, I can't get inside their heads. I mean, this has gained traction in the academic world. We've seen some respected scholars and judges come out with articles yeah. lately arguing that it should apply. Here's the problem. There's no mechanism. There's no way. We don't know how this works. The big question would be, who gets to decide if a candidate has engaged in insurrection or rebellion, and hence exclude that person from the ballot. Doesn't this question change if the former president is convicted? Yes, it absolutely does, I, I think. Um, we know that there's at least one county-level exec- uh, uh, official in New Mexico who was removed from his position. On the other hand, he had a criminal conviction for some of the activity, and he was one of the people who was, you know, on camera, you know, and sort of blatantly involved in the January 6th uh, uh, insurrection. So that wasn't really even a close case, and so they removed him from office. Now, uh, if you got a conviction somehow, and it actually involved not anything that he's been charged with so far, but, but, but it somehow involved insurrection, you might start to... I mean, that, that's the problem. There's 91 counts against Donald Trump. None of them are for insurrection or rebellion. They're for various conspiracies and frauds. So even if there's a conviction, it's not going to match what the Constitution calls for. Yeah, I think I, I take a different look here than that. Um, I think, one, historically, this provision has been used without a congressional statutory enforcement provision. So I I don't think that's a barrier. And I think we should be looking more broadly here at the conduct. So just to translate, you're saying just because there isn't a rule saying this is how you enforce it doesn't mean it can't be enforced. Exactly. People can find a way. it has been enforced in American history already. And what what is this about? It is about preventing those who have uh, either 
uh, taken up an insurrection while after taking an oath in office, which is what President Trump did. He took an oath of office and he did give comfort to those who, who engaged in insurrection. Here we have the example for that these folks have been already convicted of seditious conspiracy. So, right, the Proud Boys who had convictions there, they took up arms against the country. President Trump very publicly tweeted support for those very individuals. While they were attacking the Capitol, he was supporting them. We also have the benefit of having our January 6th committee. You have a <coughs> but bipartisan you're saying it like it's very obvious, and we were just hearing this AG kind of being like, look, my hands are tied because we don't really know how this works. Well, what the AG was saying there, he was talking about what law binds him in Arizona. So I think that's a separate question, whether he's bound. And he was saying he thinks that's wrong, right? So you're going to have multiple states here. You've had a bipartisan finding of President Trump's conduct here with the January 6th committee. You've had a bicameral finding with the second impeachment that found that he engaged in this conduct here. You've had multiple examples of institutions in our country finding that he is culpable here. And I think what should happen is that this needs to be tested. The words on the, on, in the Constitution should matter to people. And those provisions are there for a reason. And courts should weigh in before the president is allowed to be on a ballot. Uh, yeah, can you jump in here? The provision in the Constitution is very important. The problem is we're just sort of left to make it up as we go along. We cannot leave it to individual secretaries of state, state, local, county officials who are in charge of ballots to decide, I find there has been insurrection without a criminal conviction. I find there has not been an insurrection. But that's doesn't it launch the, the process that would eventually well, so, And that's the argument. Uh, yeah. And we so were talking about this on our, process our WhatsApp. Yeah. yeah, I think the argument in favor of it is, look, this, this provision has been on the books for 150 years. It's never been developed into the point where we have a procedure. Impeachment, for example. We have some semblance of a known procedure. And so I think the argument in favor of trying is, well, this is how we will eventually get to a procedure. But the other problem is also, you can't set the rules now in late 2023 and say, okay, now we're, we're figuring this out as we go, and we're going to apply it three years th back. This is what I want to ask Errol about, because this also, again... I understand what Tim and I was saying. I, I hear a lot of people saying the same exact thing and have said it throughout many of the actions uh, post-January 6th or in the months leading up to January 6th and after. But then you have a lot of people saying, uh, like a lot of people are saying, no, they're literally <laughs> saying, like, you do this and it is a dream message for the former president and his team. He points to this and says, look what they're trying to do. They're too scared. They're trying to keep me off. They're making it and up. It just fits into the thread. To Ellie's point, there's no precedent here. Well, he's making it up. Donald Trump might say that whether the facts supported it or not. You know, we know how he, he operates. But, you know, look, there are a number of cases. I've, I've covered st stories where uh, people were banned from running from office again. And it, it always bothered me a little bit. It felt a little unconstitutional. But as part of a plea deal, you can throw anything in the box you want. And people will agree to never run for office again. That was one of the outcomes they could have uh, come up with. Uh, in the impeachment trial. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it's it's not completely off the table. And the fact that it did happen in the 19th century, I think it was sort of like what they used to say about pornography. You know it when you see it, right? Where they, they'd say in the 19th century, you were a Confederate traitor, you're not going to run for office. And the person would just walk away without a law, without a statute, without a trial necessarily. Probably it shouldn't be done at the level of the Secretary of State in 50 different states. But uh, we do need to get to this question, and it's a, it's valid to raise it. Absolutely. Is that a, is that a Potter Stewart citation in the middle of the? Okay. <laughs> that could be. I like a little unconstitutional. Yeah, I actually want to know what the like. It's a little it's just like a color coded yeah. like. It's, that's in the green. It's a little Sorry, you were glaring. What? Okay, I know we have to go to break. Don't try and. <laughs> I didn't say anything. Uh, okay, we have a more serious story coming up.
Um, thank you guys, Errol, Ellie, Tamadaya. We really appreciate it. Now, the mayor of Uvalde, Texas, is accusing the district attorney of a cover-up in the investigation into the shooting at Robb Elementary School. That left 19 children and two teachers dead. We're going to have the mayor on live with us next. The mayor of Uvalde, Texas, has accused the district attorney of a, quote, cover-up in the investigation into last year's shooting at Robb Elementary School. Now, here's some numbers that are important to remember. It's been 465 days since 19 children and two teachers were killed in their classrooms. 376 law enforcement officers were on the scene, but it took 77 agonizing minutes before storming in and killing the gunman. Two months later, 411 days ago, the city of Uvalde hired an independent investigator to probe the failures of that day. So, Audie, what's actually happening now? Well, right now, the mayor of Uvalde says that the investigation has been hamstrung by the local district attorney, and he wants her to resign, basically. Mayor Don McLaughlin refiled a lawsuit against the district attorney, Christina Mitchell, on Tuesday. And the city has dropped its original lawsuit earlier this year because the DA agreed to cooperate with the investigator's request for evidence. So now the city's suing again. McLaughlin says Mitchell has not kept her promise and that the families of these 21 victims deserve answers. So joining us now is Uvalde Mayor Don McLaughlin. Welcome to the program. Good morning. How are you this morning? Good. Thank you. I want to jump right in as we've laid this out here because we reached out to D.A. Mitchell to get her point of view on this. She did not respond yet, but I want to read to you what she told the San Antonio Express on Wednesday after you filed the suit. She said, it's a distraction, an attempt to keep me as a district attorney from completing my mandate to see that justice is done to the best of my ability under the law with the facts and evidence that I have. So what's your response there to the idea that this is just a way to distract her from what she needs to be doing? No, it's not a way to distraction. What what the DA Mitchell forgets, I said in the first meeting that with our investigator who told uh, Ms. Mitchell that anything that he found criminal, whether it be on local, state, or federal authorities, he would turn over to her to prosecute. I mean, we, we that's why we hired an outside investigator to look at every avenue of what happened that day, especially our police department and our policies. So what is the state of your own investigation? What? What is the state of the investigation that the city is doing? You said you had your own investigator. Well, we we hired Jesse Prado, Prado uh, as an outside independent to do an investigation of our actions that day, of our police officers and our policies. And since day one, since day well. Day one, we have been blocked from access to get the material that we need so that he can see all the body cams, all the hallway videos. Just for a Uh, second, um, the DA has said that other investigators have completed their work. And she she sort of implied that there's really no reason why the city couldn't have finished is with it's uh, it's an independent team. Well, my comment back to that. Yeah, the only person that's finished their investigation at this time is the Department of Public Safety. Who, who is the lead investigator with the Rangers on this, and they've had access to everything from day one. The Border Patrol hasn't finished their internal investigation. 
You know, you specifically referenced the DA's chief investigator as being on the scene at the time of the shooting. CNN has not independently confirmed that he was there. Um, It seems like you're implying that this might be the reason why the DA is not moving to your speed or cooperating the way um, that you think that she said. Why do you think that's true? Give us a sense of what your thinking is here. Sure. First, let me like I said, we didn't want to file this lawsuit a second time. But in the coming weeks, and the DA, by our own admission in the Valdivieta News uh, on Thursday, she not only had one investigator there, she said she had two. And this has never been disclosed. If you look at this legislature, when they came down and did their investigation, they disclosed all the law enforcement agencies there, all the people there. There's nobody from the DA's office on that list. And all of a sudden, you know, we find out that there were two investigators there. One, it had been in and out of the hall is what we were told. And, you know, this the story on this Rob shooting. The so tragedy why, it is, why do you think she'd want to cover that up? Why do you think why do you think that implies an actual cover up? Well, why wouldn't you disclose you had people on a site as critical as this is? Why wouldn't you disclose that from day one? I mean, you know, why wouldn't you why would you not tell people, you know, yes, I had two investigators there. Why do we have to come out with it 15 months later? Now, you're leaving to run for a House seat. Um, why leave now when this investigation isn't done, when there are so many unanswered questions for the families of Uvalde? Well, that's a mistake I made, because if I would have used the term I intend to run instead I am running, I wouldn't have had to I wouldn't have had to uh, trigger uh, an automatic res- resignation. So words do matter. I made a mistake there. My previous, the previous mayor before me had run for a state office and didn't have to run. So I made the mistake of thinking I wouldn't have to either. Uh, but I'll be, I will stay on this, whether I win that seat, whether I don't win that seat. Uh, I will be very vocal, whether it's the other side of the podium, standing with the families, whatever. This investigation needs to be done. These family members, they deserve the answers. It's been 15 months, 455 days, you said at the beginning of the deal. You know, the families deserve that answer. Right now, this is a festering wound that just keeps getting salt poured in it and it, at the family's expense. Our community needs answers, too. We shouldn't We shouldn't be 15 months later where we are today. This should have been done. Mayor Don McLaughlin of Uvalde, thank you for your time. Thank you. Well, former President Trump pleading not guilty in the Georgia election subversion case, while some of his co-defendants are asking why Trump is not helping with their legal bills, how some are raising money for their defense. That's next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Well, good morning, everyone. Happy Friday. Poppy is off this week. Audie Cornish is up in New York here with us. And we're going to dive right in on a very busy day of news. President Trump Pleading, former President Trump pleading not guilty in the Georgia election subversion case and knew this hour why some of his co-defendants are turning to crowdfunding to cover their defense since their arrest. An urgent manhunt is underway right now after a convicted murderer escaped a Pennsylvania prison. The district attorney says the killer's depravity knows no bounds and warns the public that he's extremely dangerous with nothing to lose. And this hour, the Labor Department is set to release the August jobs report. We're going to get a snapshot of how the U.S. economy is faring. Can the labor market stay in that sweet spot it's been in for several months? Not too hot, not too cold. Little Goldilocks here Friday. This hour of CNN This Morning starts right now.
Well, former President Trump has pled not guilty for the fourth time. This time, he's saying he didn't conspire to overturn the results of the 2020 election in Georgia in the case brought by Fulton County DA against Trump and 18 alleged co-conspirators. The former president opted not to enter the plea in person next Wednesday, waiving his arraignment. And that's not the only legal move Trump is making in this case. His legal team has also filed a motion to sever his case from the co-defendants who want a speedy trial. That would be attorneys Sidney Powell and Kenneth Chesbrough so far. Now, Chesbrough is the alleged co-conspirator who wrote the memos advocating for the fake elector scheme. The district attorney is pushing for the trial to begin next month on October 23rd a date that Trump's attorney says will not give them, quote, sufficient time to prepare. But what about sufficient money? We know his PAC has spent about $40 million so far on legal fees, not just covering his own legal fees, but those of his aides, advisors and employees in the House's January 6th committee investigation and in the federal investigations. So what about his 18 co-defendants in the Georgia case? It's so sad to see, and they don't have a lot of money, and some of them did almost nothing. They don't even know what they're being charged for. It's just a horrible thing. I don't even know. Again, I don't even know some of these people. Here's the thing. It's not just lawyers and people in Trump's inner circle charged in this case. It's also local election officials, a bail bondsman, a pastor. How are they going to cover their legal expenses? We're going to discuss this with CNN national correspondent Kristen Holmes. So, Kristen, help us understand how the co-defendants are raising money to defend themselves. Good morning, Adi and Phil. Well, right now, Trump is not helping any of his co-defendants in footing these bills. And in fact, they're so expensive that one of the co-defendants, Harrison Floyd, who has uh, leads Black Voices for Trump, actually spent a week in jail because he couldn't afford these attorney fees or to hire an attorney. Now, because of this, they are turning to many different ways to try and raise the funds that they need for a legal defense. And that includes crowdfunding. Four of them are raising money on these crowdfunding sites. I want to pull it up here and show you just how much funds they are getting. Jenna Ellis, who is an attorney for Donald Trump, raised $180,000. John Eastman, another election lawyer for Trump, raising $500,000. Jeffrey Clark, uh, the former DOJ official, $56,000. And Kathy Latham, who was a fake elector, raising $15,000. We can see here, this is a lot of money. These bills really add up. And one other person I want to point out is Rudy Giuliani. His son created a PAC to help him pay his legal bills. And Trump is helping him a little bit. And I don't mean financially, but he is hosting a fundraiser for Giuliani next week. It's $100,000 a plate for that fundraiser for each person. Uh, So again, he will be there for that. But as of now, not actually paying any of these bills. But I was told by one Trump official uh, that if people wanted help, they should apply to Trump's legal defense fund, which was something that was set up in July. Yeah, Kristen, it's about that fund. Um, I've been kind of in the corner of my brain. I've been thinking about what happened to that. How has it been developing? Remember, it was announced, you, I think you broke the news, that uh, they, were, they were going to create it the same time period as when the FEC was t- disclosing just how much money the super PAC had been uh, spending on his behalf, his leadership PAC uh, on his behalf. What's the latest on that? 
Well, first of all, when we talk about that leadership pack, they have spent more than $41 million in 20, uh, since 2021 on legal fees. And in fact, they're bleeding out so much money on these legal fees that they requested a refund for $60 million that they gave to a super PAC that is defending, uh, that is supporting Donald Trump. And they do expect to get that money back. Now, in terms of the Legal Defense Fund, it is a nonprofit. We are told that Don Jr. and Eric Trump are doing most of the fundraising around that. And they do have a significant amount of pledges. Therefore, someone was telling me that these Georgia defendants, if they do get enough money in this legal defense fund, uh, could apply and potentially get help here. As of now, though, it doesn't seem clear how much is actually in there and how much of this is just pledges. And I do want to make one thing clear. That fund is for these legal bills of aides and advisors, not for the former president. It just goes to show you, I mean, again, they are bleeding money here from that Save America PAC enough to have to request a refund for a donation that they made to a super PAC. Clearly, they need the money, and clearly that's why they set up this defense fund. We're going to dig into this more in a few minutes, but for now, we're going to let you go. Kristen Holmes, thanks. So Trump may be pleading not guilty for the fourth time, and you probably have a lot of focus on four indictments. Maybe you don't at all because it seems like there's so much going on. But it's important to take a step back here. It's what CNN's Stephen Collinson did this morning in a digital piece on CNN.com saying, quote, a net of justice is tightening around 2020 election deniers. So what's he talking about there? Well, there are actually significant legal losses for people who tried to overturn the election results just this week. The top Proud Boys lieutenant, Joe Biggs, now facing 17 years in prison. Biggs led the march on the Capitol, to the Capitol on January 6th and was convicted of seditious conspiracy. And former Marine Zachary Real, president of the group's Philadelphia chapter, he's looking at 15 years. He broke down in tears during sentencing and told the judge, quote, for what it's worth, I stand here today and say that I am done with it all. Uh, I'm done with politics. I'm done peddling lies for other people who don't care about me. Also, Two men have pleaded guilty to threatening election officials in separate criminal cases. Chad Christopher Stark of Texas pleaded guilty to making threats against public officials in Georgia after the 2020 election, while Joshua Russell of Ohio pleaded guilty to threatening an Arizona election worker during the 2022 midterm election season. The cases are part of the Justice Department's Election Threats Task Force, which launched in June 2021, to address the rise in threats against election officials. It's the start of Labor Day weekend, and AAA is predicting a lot more Americans than last year will be traveling. The organization reports a 4% increase in U.S. travel bookings and a whopping 44% jump in international travel bookings compared to last year. But it all comes as Hurricane Idalia snarls travel plans in the southeast. CNN's aviation correspondent Pete Mundine joins us live from Washington this morning. Uh, so, Pete, what are travelers walking into? Yeah, they're walking into some crowds and probably no empty middle seats next to them, Adi. You know, this is going to be a climactic end for a huge summer for air travel. The TSA says today will be the busiest at airports of the travel period. 2.7 million people expected to pass through security at America's airports on Friday. 14 million people in total through Wednesday. But here is the really big number. 227.5 million people all summer long, from Memorial Day to Labor Day. That's what the TSA says, and it's the record. It's the biggest summer for air travel ever. Think about this, though. The cancellations have actually gone down a little bit in number compared to last year. We saw about 50,000 last year, Memorial Day to Labor Day. This time, we've seen about 40,000 in total, so about a 20% drop. But travel expert Scott Kyes of Going says 
there is still so much out of airlines control and there's a bit of room to grow here. Listen. The odds are pretty good. The odds are, are have been have uh, uh, mostly played out in the travelers' favor in 2023. With the X factor, of course, being how will Mother Nature uh, uh, cooperate? Will we see widespread thunderstorms like we saw over July 4th that led to a lot of cancellations that were largely unpreventable? The FAA is anticipating some ground stumps today, some big hubs on the list, too. Phoenix, San Francisco, Orlando, Tampa, Miami. So if you're trying to get around the weather, sometimes the best way is to drive. Sometimes Labor Day is really more of a driving holiday for people. And AAA says the best time to drive is today before 11 a.m. So finish watching CNN this morning and then hit the road. The worst time between 11 and 9 a.m. in general. In fact, here in D.C., some of the traffic could be three times the norm later on this afternoon. So try to hit the road soon. It's not going to be pretty out there. You know, Pete, I appreciate you uh Time people to watch <laughs> CNN this morning all the way through because Audi started this by saying it's the start of Labor Day weekend and I was like, yo, we got like 52 minutes left of no, the show. No, not get it's to in my yet. mind. Okay, <laughs> vacation is in the mind. <laughs> Pete um, Mundine, thank you so thanks, much. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate it. <laughs> Well, the legal bills for Trump's 18 co-defendants are adding up, and as we just heard, some are turning to crowdfunding to make ends meet. So what does being tight on money mean for their legal strategies? We're going to talk about that coming up next. Former President Donald Trump co-defendants in the Georgia election subversion case face hefty legal bills as they mount a defense against the sprawling RICO indictment. So far, Trump and his political machine have refused to assist with legal bills. So his one-time allies have to scramble to find other sources of funds. His former attorney, Jenna Ellis, who is one of the co-defendants in this case, wrote a post on rebranded Twitter, quote, I was reliably informed Trump isn't funding any of us who are indicted. Why isn't MAGA Incorporated funding everyone's defense? Now, a source close to Trump told CNN, I don't think uh, Ellis would be on the top of Trump's list anyway. Now, since the indictment, Ellis has already raised more than $180,000 through a faith-based crowdfunding site called Give, Send, Go. Joining us now with the analysis, CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig, CNN political commentator Errol Lewis, politics reporter for Semaphore Shelby Talcott, and the national correspondent for The Washington Post, Philip Bump. Welcome all of you to the table. So uh, I guess being part of this process does not necessarily mean you're going to get the support of MAGA financially. Um, is that all that unusual? I mean, there's a couple cases going on at once yet. What have we seen so far? Yeah, I, I, I don't think it's unusual from the perspective of this is a Trump situation, right? Um, but, and the lawyers can probably speak to this better than I can in terms of whether it's unusual from the broader perspective. But uh, what I think is interesting is you have several of these co-defendants trying to sever their trials. And from my understanding, one of the benefits of severing a trial would be that Trump's lawyers would not then be at that trial. So any um, defense, anything that comes up that implicates Trump Maybe if the trial is severed, the co-defendants aren't going to, you know what I mean, aren't going to argue against it. So first of all, I think Shelby's exactly right. One of the advantages to a defendant of having a severed trial, meaning two separate trials, is the ones who go second 
have a huge tactical advantage. You get to see the other side's playbook. I mean, that is invaluable. On the question about payments for the co-defendants, this is very unusual for a Trump case because he has historically, dating back to impeachment, covered himself by having his PACs and his associated entities pay for lawyers for co-counsel. Now, that's actually not illegal. This happens quite a bit. I and saw people it. saw it yeah. as being to his benefit, right? hundred percent to, to his people close. Yes, this is this is a tactic that powerful rich people use. It's legal. And powerful rich corporations. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, corpor- corporations are a great example. But by paying for someone else's attorneys, you make it really difficult for them to flip on you because if they do, and if they have the courage to say to their lawyer who's being funded by the boss, "Hey, I think I my best interest would be going in and cooperating." You're going to lose that lawyer. You're going to have to pay for your own lawyer, which is really, really expensive. So it's protected Trump before, and now it's not protecting him in the Georgia case. But does, well, the, PAC have the, does the PAC have the money this time around right. to yeah. pay for it? And if it doesn't, which it seems like it doesn't, would Trump himself, you know, it, yeah. I feel like it is you less usual for Trump himself to <laughs> pull his own funds out of it. I mean, he's not even funding his own legal defense largely, right? What were you going to say? Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, we saw an example in Florida of this guy who yeah. was being had his lawyer paid for. There was a conflict because he gave false testimony, according to the federal government, and his lawyer also worked for a guy who his false testimony, if he were to reverse that testimony, it would implicate his, his lawyer's other client. So he pulled out of that, and then what he did is he implicated other people in Trump's circuit. And that's the question, right? It's very cheap. If you leave Trump's orbit and then you testify against Trump and you make a deal and then you're out, of, you, you right. don't have a criminal case anymore, right? Yeah. Trump has here two conflicting motivations. He's got the political question, the legal question. They're intermingled, right? The political question could solve his legal question if he's elected president. But so he has to balance people like Jenna Ellis, who he has no indication mm-hmm. to try and help, as that quote said, since she flipped and is working for Ron DeSantis right now. But he's in that same boat with a lot of different people. Do I help them and keep them loyal legally? What does that say politically? Do I let them use my political capital to raise money for their legal defenses? It's really, really complicated. And it seems as though, based on the fact they don't have a whole lot of cash, some of this is going to end up weighing against Donald Trump. Errol, what message does this send to any other potential Trump supporters who may want to go, quote unquote, that extra mile, right? I mean, this whole process uh, in justice is sort of an exercise in sending a message. He has given them a lot to think about. Uh, Rudy Giuliani, longtime uh, uh, supporter, friend, going back decades, not getting his bills paid having to go to Mar-a-Lago on bended knee and basically beg for help. And apparently the, the reaction was, you know, when Rudy Giuliani says, look, I went to court 60 times for you. And the response was, well, you lost all those cases. So, so. I mean, that's a tough uh, comeback. That's a real food for thought. Um, and, and look, we know from Michael Cohen, his other longtime Who talks about this frequently. Talks about it frequently. He says it was based on the fact that he was left hung out to dry. His family's security was at stake. And that's when he turned and started talking. And, and I think we can expect to see that with, with others as well. Phil, to that point, though, I think one of the things, and Ellie, we've talked about this a couple of times, like what is there to flip here? Sure. Which I think is the question. big question, right? Like Michael Cohen knew all the things about all the things uh, in terms of the Trump organization and what, what the former president was doing in his, his business life, pre-political life. You look through the indictment, the Fulton County indictment, you look through the Jack Smith uh, indictments as well, where uh, it seems like on the... Documents case that kind of already rolled up everybody that's in the uh, in the crosshairs to some degree. I'm, I'm wondering what what the flip is here. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, so the guy we talked about in Florida had a very concrete thing. Yep, he right. said, they asked me to delete this surveillance footage, right? Yep. So that's a very specific thing. Again, this is all alleged according to the indictment. Uh, and it's a good question, right? The RICO indictment in Georgia has a lot of different components, a lot of establishment of fact that needs to be done. We've already seen some of the defendants there say, U.S., Don, I, you know, I did this fake elected thing because Donald Trump asked me to, things along those lines. I don't know. I mean, you know, Jack Smith, Fannie Willis, they know they know the sorts of things that they're going to be willing to trade for. Right. There may there may be nothing. They may not. You know, someone may say, look, I'm ready to come to your side. I'll, I'll do whatever you need. And they may say you, you don't have anything like there's nothing you can do for me. Uh, so it's a good question. And especially because some of these uh, charges are very complicated and rooted I don't, I don't want to say they're, they're sort of loosey-goosey, but they're like sort of ideological to some extent. You know, they're sort of, they're, there's a theory of the case that needs to be made. I'm not an attorney. Ellie can maybe speak to this. But, yeah, you but know, more maybe importantly, there's, there's four of them, and you've got to pay for lawyers for all of them while running a campaign. That's right. It's, it's extremely expensive. I mean, you know, we've seen a lot Donald of Trump has been drawing yeah. down a lot of his political money to pay for this. And those, some of these lawyers actually do want to get paid, you know? Uh, Donald Trump is famous for stiffing his attorneys. Not everybody's going to get that kind of a deal or have that kind of an influence. Yeah, excuse me, Fessier, we've talked about it a lot. Um, I know we have to go, but like the idea of not just the organization and the mechanics of a campaign, not right now when you're plus 30 in a primary, but in a general election when Joe Biden and his team are going to raise two plus billion dollars. It's not an insignificant factor. All right, Ellie, Shelby, Errol, Philip. Hey, go Buckeyes this weekend. Indeed. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Appreciate it. Well, an urgent manhunt is underway in Pennsylvania this morning for a convicted murderer who escaped prison. He's being described as, quote, extremely dangerous. We're going to have the details. That's coming up next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Well, this morning, a massive manhunt is underway in Pennsylvania after a convicted murderer escaped a prison outside of Philadelphia. Police say Danilo Cavalcante is, quote, extremely dangerous, was last seen about 30 miles west of Philadelphia. This is what he was wearing the last time he was seen, a white T-shirt and white sneakers. CNN's Danny Freeman is live in Philadelphia. Danny, we've talked this morning about kind of the way this was framed, this individual, the danger, the risk he poses. What's the latest? What do you know right now? Well, Phil, of course, the biggest question we still have at this moment is how did this inmate escape? Uh, law enforcement officials, they have not given us an answer to that question. But as you said, they've just been emphasizing really 24 hours after this escape, this man is extremely dangerous and residents in Chester County should be on high alert. So let me tell you exactly how we got to this point. Like I said, this started about 24 hours ago at 8.50 a.m. on Thursday, yesterday morning. That's when law enforcement says that Danilo Cavalcante escaped from the Chester County Prison. Again, that's about 30 miles west of where we are here in Philadelphia. And I just want to repeat what you said. He was last seen at 940 wearing that white t-shirt, gray shorts, and white sneakers. And Phil, that's important because law enforcement officials believe that he was able to actually change clothes after he escaped from the prison. And just to drill down on why law enforcement is being so strong uh, with their language here about this inmate, uh, this man was just convicted of first-degree murder two weeks ago. He was just sentenced to life without the possibility of parole last week. And that's all once he was found guilty of stabbing his former girlfriend, stabbing her 38 times and killing her in front of her children. And Phil, the prosecutors in this case, they say that the motive for that killing was that the girlfriend actually discovered that he was wanted in connection to a murder back in Brazil. She's uh, prosecutor said she was going to expose that. And then that was the motivation for him killing his girlfriend. Uh, I want you to take a listen to exactly how dangerous the DA feels this suspect is. Take a listen. 
his depravity knows no bounds. I mean, this is someone who has nothing to lose, as you indicated. So I don't know what he's capable of doing. If he's already engaged in a murder in broad daylight, daylight in front of her two children, there, there's no um, stopping him from doing anything more egregious. So, Phil, this manhunt now in its second day. We know there are dozens of agencies that have been involved in this search. We've seen canines, we've seen drones, we've seen helicopters, and, of course, a lot of officers on foot trying to bring this man back in. Yeah, with clear urgency. Danny Freeman, great reporting. Thanks for the updates. Please keep us updated as the morning moves forward. Now, a Missouri judge has ruled that a white homeowner must stand trial for shooting a black teen who mistakenly went to the wrong house to pick up his siblings. It comes after a preliminary hearing, which included testimony from 12 witnesses and 911 calls from neighbors, as well as the defendant. The teen, Ralph Yarl, also testified in court Thursday, facing Lester for the first time since the shooting in April. Lester has pleaded not guilty to first-degree assault and armed criminal action. His next court appearance is set for September 20th. Well, just about a minute and 22 seconds. The Labor Department will release the August jobs report. We're going to break down the numbers. That's just ahead. And President Biden asking Congress for four more billion dollars to refill FEMA's disaster relief fund, just as he calls for a short-term funding bill to avoid a government shutdown. So can Congress get it done? We'll break it down next. The White House is asking Congress for another $4 billion in emergency disaster relief. The ask comes as Florida, Georgia, and the Carolinas face what's expected to be a lengthy and costly recovery from Hurricane Idalia. Plus, Maui's residents are just beginning to piece back together after the devastation caused by the wildfire. It also comes just a few weeks after an initial $12 billion in emergency funding was requested by the White House as FEMA's disaster relief fund moves into dire straits. It's been strained by wildfires and floods and, of course, now hurricane season. President Biden, in a visit to FEMA headquarters on Thursday, stressed the urgency. But we need this money done. We need this disaster relief request met. We need to do it in September. We can't wait. But here's the thing. Emergency funding isn't the only thing the White House has called on Congress to get done this month. He's also asked for Biden has also asked for a short term extension of government funding. There's a deadline, after all, at the end of this month. So what does this all mean? Well, this was what one House Republican told me earlier this week when I asked about it. It's, quote, a nightmare. Why? I'm going to walk you through it. So obviously, U.S. Capitol, Congress needs to be passing appropriations bills, spending bills to actually fund the government or We've seen it a number of times over the course of the last several years, the government shutdown. Three numbers that really underscore why this is a big problem right now. So there are 30 days until Congress uh, runs out of time to fund the government. A government shutdown would happen at the end of this month. There are 12 spending bills that comprise the kind of full scale of government funding. The House has to pass them. The Senate has to pass them. They need to reconcile. Then the president signs them. Zero of those spending bills have actually been signed into law at this point. Tell me the last time Congress passed... 12 bills through both chambers and got to the president's desk in 30 days. Oh, wait, it's going to take you a while. So added to that, not just the normal funding of the federal government, the emergency spending that Audie was just talking about. You have the disaster uh, relief funds that were asked for on an emergency basis. First, $12 billion, then an additional $4 billion just this morning. You also, in that emergency request, the initial one, included a significant amount of money for Ukraine on an emergency basis. So now you have fund the government and also more than $40 billion in emergency spending. So what's the solution? Well, 
based on precedent, there's actually a pretty easy one. And on the top line, the president, the House Speaker, the Senate Minority Leader, the House Minority Leader, and the Senate Majority Leader, Democrats and Republicans all agree there will need to be a short-term extension of funding, a continuing resolution is called basically freeze the funding levels as they are, get them to another point in time, kick the can down the road to some degree. Easy, right? Maybe tie in, tack on the emergency funding to it, move forward, problem solved. 30 days to do that, you can do that. Here's the reality. That is going to be extremely difficult. In fact, there's no real sense right now how it's actually going to get done or if it's going to get done. Why? House Republicans just took the majority of this Congress. They have made very clear throughout the course of this Congress they want the trajectory of spending, the entire shape of spending, to be shifted dramatically. Chip Roy already on a continuing resolution saying under no circumstances. Uh, Bob Good saying be business as usual in Washington, something you didn't want. Ronnie Jackson, another congressman from Texas, I will not vote for any continuing resolution that doesn't smash Biden's DOJ into a million pieces. Be real with you right now. There is no continuing resolution that will defund entirely the Justice Department. And that's another issue. As the Trump investigations and indictments have come forward, Republicans on the House side, conservatives and Trump loyalists, have pushed to defund those investigations. Investigations from Manhattan DA, Alvin Bragg, Fonnie Willis in, in Fulton County, Jack Smith, the special counsel. The legality, particularly on Jack Smith, very questionable, but it is now a serious issue that they're trying to resolve. And, you know, just in case you were wondering what else is going on, Marjorie Taylor Greene, a very real ally to Speaker Kevin McCarthy, tweeted last night, I will not vote to fund the government if Congress doesn't do this. Impeachment inquiry vote on Joe Biden, defund Biden's weaponization of government, no real indication of what that actually is, eliminate all COVID vaccine and mandates, no funding for the war in Ukraine. None of that will happen in a continuing resolution or before the end of this month. So that's a big problem for this guy. That's Kevin McCarthy getting the gavel. 15 votes got him to this point. Spending was critical and spending cuts were critical to getting to that point. They were critical to the debt ceiling deal just a couple months ago. And well, now all eyes are once again on Kevin McCarthy. The best way to describe the next four weeks on Capitol Hill? Well, Mitch McConnell put it in a pretty concise manner. Yeah, honestly, it's a, it's a pretty big mess. So Moving from McConnell back to McCarthy, I'm going to go to the person who I go to always when I want to know what's happening behind closed doors, <laughs> behind the scenes with the House Republican Conference, but also with McCarthy and his leadership team uh, on Capitol Hill, Melanie Zanona. Mel, August is a quiet month. We don't see lawmakers, but there have been a lot of discussions about what happens next. Tell me how lawmakers get out of the jam they're currently in. A great question, Phil. And first of all, I have to say it's great seeing you in your happy place right now doing magic wall and appropriations. I think we just need like an Ohio sports reference to complete the trifecta. Um, but I'm happy to indulge you here because this is really an important issue and one that people should be paying attention to because this is a real pop problem for Kevin McCarthy. And he has been strategizing behind the scenes about how they're going to get out of this mess. And two of the big questions right now is how long is the CR, the short-term spending bill, going to be we're hearing likely until maybe early December, potentially a little bit less than that. And then the other question is what gets attached, if anything, and hitches a ride on this short-term spending bill? The problem right now is that while many Republicans support disaster aid, right now that request is attached to Ukraine funding, which many conservatives are against. So they want to delink those two issues or they want to have offsets. And then you have a number of conservatives like Chip Roy who are now demanding that border issues be attached to it as well. So Kevin McCarthy has 
has to figure out the sweet spot here. He doesn't need hardline conservatives necessarily get this over the finish line because presumably it will have Democratic support. But then he risks enraging those same conservatives who could force a vote to oust him at any given moment, Phil. It's a great point. The votes are there for continuing resolution if he just puts it on the floor. The politics, though, at least at this moment right. and his conference are not great reporting. As always, Ohio State plays Indiana at noon tomorrow. If you were talking about the college <laughs> football reference to our resident Chicago native and Chicago sports mm-hmm. fan, Melanie Zanona. Thanks so much. Thanks. Just into CNN, the Labor Department released the August jobs report. It shows the economy added 187,000 new jobs last month. Unemployment numbers ticked up a bit to 3.8%. We're going to go to CNN business correspondent Rahel Solomon to help us understand what we are looking at. So, as we always ask, good news, bad news, hard to tell with the jobs numbers. This is still a, a good report. This is sort of right in the middle, just exactly what I think the Fed wants to see and perhaps a Biden wants to see. So 187,000, as you said, Audie, to put that in context... That is slightly higher than most economists were expecting. The expectation had been closer to 170. 3.8% for unemployment, as you pointed out. So we've been in this range for unemployment of about 34 to 3.8% in the last year and a half, I want to say. That's still pretty low. 38 on the higher end of that, yeah. but still in, in really healthy And even compared territory. to other world economies that also dealt with post-pandemic. Absolutely. So still in strong territory here. I want to show you the sectors and where we're seeing job growth, because I think this really tells the story. So take a look at where we saw job growth. A continuation of what we have been seeing. Healthcare is still adding jobs, 70,000. Leisure and hospitality, as we all continue to spend on traveling and going out and services, the services part of the economy. Yes, that's adding 40,000. But here's something interesting. And so there had been a lot of concern about whether what we're seeing outside of um, what we're seeing in the news would impact the labor report. And we are right. I mean, you think about yellow trucking uh, filing for bankruptcy earlier this month. uh, That is reported here. So transportation and warehousing, that sector lost 34,000 jobs uh, reflecting the bankruptcy of yellow. But also the Hollywood actors and the writers, that also being reflected in this report as well. Uh, some good news for the Fed, wages moderated. So uh, good news for the Fed, not as much for Americans who are looking for When you say bump. good news, we mean that they want to cool down the economy, right? Not so much spending to bring down prices. Exactly. Well, Rahel, thank you so much for explaining it. Well, the judge overseeing the Georgia election subversion case will allow all proceedings in the courtroom to be live streamed and televised. How could this impact the case? We're going to dig in next. The judge overseeing the 2020 election interference case against former President Donald Trump and his 18 co-defendants is giving the green light for all proceedings in his courtroom to be live streamed and televised. Judge Scott McAfee says he is following the precedent that was already set by the judge who handled preliminary matters in the case. But a reminder, Trump's federal cases in Florida and D.C. do not allow cameras inside the courtroom as a rule. So how big of a deal is it for this ruling? Joining us now with the analysis, CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig and CNN senior media reporter Oliver Darcy. Welcome back. So um, Trump, who's like in a deposition or Trump, who's in a legal proceeding, I feel like is a little different from the person people see in public as a candidate, as the former president. How significant is this? It's a big deal to see these proceedings live. And I think it's very important that Georgia has said that they will show it live. The problem is that trial is very likely to be well after the election. The two that are most likely to be before the election are the two federal cases where, of course, federal courts have long had this rule that they don't allow cameras in the courtroom. Now, I've been objecting to and sort of ranting about this rule 
And here's why. If you ask the federal courts why they can't have cameras, they'll say, well, we have a rule. Who made that rule? The federal judges themselves. Who can change that rule? The federal judges. It's not as if hostile alien overlords came down and <laughs> d- demanded that. It is that- a very, it's a thing judges are often chafe against, right? It's yeah. not something that they wanted. The Supreme Court took forever to embrace this. Can you talk about yeah. why? Like how, once we have something in, in the public view like this? How does it change things? I think it's an antiquated view. I mean, the the big argument is that they don't want these uh, courtrooms to become reality television sets. Uh, But I think we can all agree that's probably not going to happen. And I'd point to the Alex Jones trials. Those were streamed live. And if anything is going to become unhinged and just go off the rails, it's going to be the Alex Jones trial. And we managed as a country to get through those trials streamed live on YouTube. And I think it was actually good for the public. But did we care about it the same way we care about the former president? Well, Probably not the same level. I think the Trump trial will be the most watched trial of all time. And if any others are, are streamed, it will be, um, you know, highly rated. People will pay attention. But I do think at the end of the day that those trials showed you can stream uh, this on YouTube, online, allow the public to see it and see the evidence before these people for their own eyes, with their own eyes. And I think it was beneficial. I think in the absence of this, you have a void of information that allows conspiracy theories, misinformation to thrive. And with the former president, um, obviously, that's always a factor. So streaming it live lets the public see it, opens it up. If I can second that, the Derek Chauvin trial, who was convicted of murdering George Floyd, we watched all of that live. Perfectly dignified, fair proceeding. The Kyle Rittenhouse trial, same thing. The trial of the men who murdered Ahmaud Arbery, same, all in state courts. We watched those live. Nothing wrong. All these fears that judges have, oh, oh, my decorum shall be compromised, did not come to pass. As a lawyer, does it change how you operate? It wouldn't for me. You know, I would be a little wary of it as a prosecutor. Or have you seen it? Okay, so for you, yeah. no. But have you seen it? Could you see that? So would you see that? I've had, I guess, maybe the fortune of never having to try a case in a televised proceeding. I think yeah, the television would be foreign for you. I know. <laughs> I wouldn't know what to do. I wouldn't know what to do. I'd be helpless. Um, Here's, here's a little insider tip. Lawyers grandstand whether or not there is a TV camera in the courtroom. I mean, there were certain defense lawyers, because prosecutors are taught to sort of you keep it on the straight and narrow, but there were certain defense lawyers who you knew during their closing argument were going to cry on command. I mean, grandstand, you're performing already for a more important audience, which is the jury. So I don't buy into this fear that cameras are going to throw this thing into chaos and turn a trial into a circus. The founder of Court TV uh, wrote in the New York Times in an op-ed that Trump's trial should be televised so people see the truth. Uh, Basically, Americans will believe the Trump verdict only if they can see it. Does that even make a difference to a community that already believes that these are in some ways show trials? I I think it does. I mean, at the end of the day, I haven't actually seen anyone put forth a good argument that these trials should not be televised. I think most of what you're hearing from people like Ellie and others um, is that it should be televised for obvious reasons. Again, this, these are going to be historic trials. They're going to go on down in history. And not allowing the public to have any real visibility in there outside, you know, a few reporters being in the courtroom in an overflow room, I really think that does a disservice. We, we got an example of this, by the way, sorry, a few days ago with the Mark Meadows hearing, where that was happening in federal court. We couldn't see it, but we were getting snippets. We were getting people were slacking out to reporters. And we were just getting bits and pieces. At the end of the day, you'll get a transcript, but it's going to be 6, 7 o'clock. You're going to get 300 pages dropped off. If we have to cover the Trump trial that way, that's going to be a disservice to the American public. Yeah. Well, it'll be fascinating to watch play out. Hey, Supreme Court, this kind of applies to you yeah. as well. Ellie Oliver, thanks, guys. Appreciate it. 
It's been months of back and forth between Hollywood unions and studios, but as summer comes to a close, they're no closer to reaching a deal. So what do Americans think of the strike as some of their favorite TV shows are on pause? Harry Enten is here with this morning's number next. That is a live look right outside of LAX. Bumper to bumper traffic as travelers are trying to leave the city. It is heading into Labor Day weekend after all. The only thing slower than that traffic in LA? Negotiations, it seems, between Hollywood studios, actors, and writers. Now, it's been months of no late night, no red carpets, and big shakeups to movie and TV schedules. And there's been little progress as the strike continues. But a new poll shows that despite the disruptions, their picket lines have brought an overwhelming majority of Americans still support the workers on strike. Harry Enten is here with this morning. So what's the morning's number, Harry? All right, so this morning's number is, and I love this animation so much. We'll get in a second. Here we go. It takes a T- little bit. Today, yes, it takes a little bit, but it's like a movie, right? It's <laughs> yeah, yeah, a yeah. film. No, 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 I understood. Yeah. I yes. It, I okay, okay, okay. Today is day 50 of the actor strike. I'll note that, of course, the writers have been on strike for over 100 days now, but it's day 50 of the actor strike. And I will note, you know, we were saying, okay, the public opinion in the labor dispute. Look at this. Writers versus the studios. Look at the writers. 72% versus the studios at just 19%. You look at the actors versus the studios. You have a slightly tighter margin there, but still overwhelming support for the actors. 67% to the studios, 24%. Overall on this one, the studios are not favored. The writers and the actors are overwhelmingly favored. I I hesitate to ask this question but this is also your area of expertise. Does this break down along partisan lines in yeah. any way? Yeah, I know, right? Who would have ever thought that I might uh, have uh, some interest in the politics of this all? Yeah. So favor in their strikes. And I think this is kind of interesting, right? So if you look at the writers right here, you see 89% of Democrats favor the writers, 58% of Republicans favor the writers, a majority of both, which perhaps is something you might not necessarily expect, given that you know Republicans, historically speaking, haven't been that favorable to unions. But take a look at the actors. You see the Democrats, 89% to 88%, very little drop-off. But look at Republicans, writers to actors. Look at this drop-off among actors. Just 43% of Republicans favor the actors. Maybe it's something, oh, we don't like those Hollywood elites. We don't like those actors out there. Something perhaps is going on out there. Democrats very consistent in their support. Republicans see this drop-off. The other little nugget that I think is really interesting here is compare this to what we saw about 15 years ago when the writers, of course, were on strike. And what do we see here? From 2007 to 2023, this is the public overall. Look at this jump in support in favor of the writers. 12 points more favorable towards the writers this time around than last time around. And the no opinion, look at this, dropped off from 16% to 3%. So it's not just that Americans are favoring the writers more, it's also that they care more. Those without an opinion have dropped off. And I think that is largely in line with what we see nationally, which is we've seen more support for labor unions now than we saw 15 years ago. We're at basically our highest level dating back over the last 50 years. That's a fascinating dynamic. Um, stick around. We're going to talk baseball for a few seconds. Sure. In a few seconds. But also be sure to tune in to Audie's CNN podcast, The Assignment. In this week's episode, we didn't plan this. It just happened because we're brilliant. She sat down with Frank and Leonard, a movie and TV producer and industry in- insider, about the state of the Hollywood strikes. Listen to it. Listen to all of them. Audie's podcast is a must listen. Now, before we go, it's pretty safe to say that no one had a better day yesterday than Braves outfielder Ronald Acuna. The 25-year-old 
is one of the favorites to win the National League MVP. And in the second inning against the Dodgers, Acuna broke a one-to-one tie with Harry Enton-like power, a grand slam home run. But this wasn't just any homer. It was his 30th of the season. Makes him the first player in Major League history to hit 30 dangers, steal 60 bases in a single season. It's only September 1st. Here's the funny thing. Might not be the most memorable part of the day. He'd actually married his longtime girlfriend, Maria, in a small ceremony at House in the Mountains, about 45 minutes from the team's hotel. Um, it's a pretty wild week for Acuna. He got knocked down by fans who wanted a hug. He handled that very well at Coors Field. More importantly, he got married. Harry, we've got like 10 seconds left. Give me your wit. Or just look at the awesome pictures. I, I would just say he is my hero. Something to live up to, right? I don't think I'd marry uh, my girlfriend on television, but maybe that would be the thing that could blow this completely out of the water. Oh, I wish we had more than six seconds. I want to go down this path and get you in a lot of trouble. Sorry, the show's running out of time. <laughs> CNN News Central starts now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.